The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day. Yes. We're back, ladies and gentlemen, with Greg Fitzsimmons. He's writing a letter to Santa right now. Please. <laughs> it's not too late. <laughs> next year. It's always next year. I was thinking about Santa with uh, the elves. Isn't there a funny metaphor that, like, he's got all these little elves working to make children's toys for no money, and then you think about our toys do come from China? That is kind of fucked up, but Chinese people aren't elves, dude. They're children. How rude. They're children Some of them are, are right. making the toys. Yeah. Little that elf is... children. That is kind of fucked up. Yeah. The whole idea of getting a bunch of people to work for way less than they would ever make here is kind of a weird accepted thing that we have as far as like our items, our electronics and the things that we love. Like almost all of them are made by people in another country working for shit money. Hmm. That's NAFTA, man. We opened it up. Is that what it is, the WTO, too? Yeah. The trade organization? Yeah, it's basically, you know, there used to be slavery. And with slavery, you paid the, you paid the help nothing or very little. And uh, you had to house them and you had to feed them and you had to heal them. You go to a third world country, it's slavery, but you don't have to deal with any of the overhead. Yeah, because they don't really care if they own you all the time. They just care if they own you enough so that you show up and do what you have to do. Exactly. Like the, the idea that you're just free to wander around and quit and come back. But if you keep them in economic slavery, right. they're essentially always going to be enslaved. Well, that's what Marx said, that, that capitalism uh, depends on a, a certain percentage of the population being hardcore unemployables so that you can always say there's somebody else. Ooh, that's weird. It's weird because I, I like the idea that people can do whatever they want them to do with their life. They can, they can make whatever choices they would, they would like to make. They can take on whatever, any job they want. But it's, it's strange when you think of someone who's so far ahead of the game, like some Warren Buffett-type character. Not him. I don't know what kind of business he owns. Sam Walton. Some dude. Some, let's make up some fucking billionaire character. Right. Who decides he can make you know, X amount more per year if they open up a shop in Guatemala. And they just close up that one they have here in the States, a little too pricey. This one's going to make us, you know, X amount more on the dollar. Yeah. And probably he will never even notice it. He will. Oh, it's a fucking, it's another zero mm. in a column and in one of his. And a, and a crazy thing is, is that, you know, I don't know. I'm not super wealthy, but if I was, I would really be thinking about a different agenda than making more. Yeah. You know, you really look at the people that create, um, you know, an economy within their own country or within their own community and uh, at the same time live the life that they, they'll never fucking eat that money up anyway. Yeah. I mean, look at you. You got your own little your little economy. You got a little podcast coming off of yours and you got people that work for you and comedians that you bring on the road and, you know, it's, it's everywhere. It's almost like, you know, I, I hate that expression that Obama used when he was running, when he was uh, in office about small businesses. You didn't do that alone. You didn't do that right. by yourself. Right. But the, the reality is his point was, was right. And it's, it's right with everything. Like, you can't sell iPhones if no one shows up for work at the factory. Right. If everyone goes, fuck you. You can't pay me 25 cents an hour. Fuck you. Then we don't have iPhones anymore. Yeah. But because we know that these people are poor not we we're not we don't have any iphone factories but because they know these people are poor they can continue doing that yeah 
That's so weird, man. That's so weird. They're jumping off the building so much they have nets around them. You look <laughs> Is at the that fo- right? You didn't know that? No. Oh, my God, dude. The Foxconn factories are terrifying because those people live there. They have dormitories there. They eat there, live there, sleep there, and they have nets all around them. And this is where it gets really weird. You know, there's always going to be people who on the hardcore right will always argue towards whatever is like economically best for the, for the company, yeah, you know, they'll, they'll f- somehow or another come up with some justification for what kind of damage tapping an oil well do, or oil spills, or or this kind of shit. But this guy said to me, he goes, "Well, you know, if you look at the numbers, it's actually very similar to the number of people that commit suicide in an overall population. Because you got to look at it. There's like five hundred thousand people working at this factory, yeah, or some crazy number. I just made that up. We should find out what the actual number is." But it's some nutty number like that. You're it's talking like about thousands there's of people one factory fa- complex mm-hmm. that has a half a million people there? I don't think it's a half a million. I made that up. Right. I just, but it might be 50,000, yeah. whatever it is. There's so many people that work there that they're, the amount of people that, are, that commit suicide on the job are directly proportion proportionate to, to like a, a normal city. Right. Which is, f- okay, I get it. But how many people kill themselves at work? If I was going to go down... It'd be at my job. I'm taking a couple people with me. I really think suicide is the only reason I would kill kill myself is that I wanted to kill some other people, and I don't I don't want to do the time. God damn, that's what a lot of people do it when they know the jig is up. Yep, just put that gun in their head. Bam! Imagine that feeling. Oof. Imagine that moment before you committed suicide. Jesus what was what? Christ. How high your heart rate would be pacing, dealing with your own mortality. The biggest question. And we both know people who've done it. Right. You know, I know two people that did it. I, I know one guy that did it pretty well. I knew him pretty well. He was a really nice guy. It was really disturbing. It really hurt. Like, you know, you, you hear that someone was in such pain, they, they put a gun to their head. You're like, yeah. damn, I really like that guy. Like, that's fucked. Like, I don't know what tipped left or right. And his uh, chemical makeup or his life you know, situation, his circumstances, whatever it was. But God damn, that's a, that's a sad, sad thing that the game gets so far gone that you're like, I just got to pull the plug. Hmm. I just got to flip the board over. Yeah. This, is, this is never going to work out. Because the instinct to not kill yourself is so strong yeah. that the pain that would make you do it must just be Unbearable. something you can't imagine. You know, I've talked to quite a few people now with what you would call depression or have had depression and overcome it or have had, uh, you know, any sort of mental issues and how to take medication for it and overcome it. And um, I, I just think we vary so much, man. I think human brain, our minds and what we can do, our norm, what makes us happy, like whatever, whatever your state is, what you need to achieve to get out of like the muck, like the, the, the down feeling and yeah. what another person needs to achieve could be very different. Right. Yeah. You know, it's just like everything else, like people that are tall, people that are short, freckles, whatever the fuck it is. We vary so much that we got to be really careful when we like look at like, yeah, well, how could he do that? He had such a good life. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, might have been a good life for you on the outside. Yeah. Right. But that guy was in like some sort of chemical hell all the time. Yeah. With the exterior maybe doesn't have much to do with the interior. I mean, if you talk about the statistics of people committing suicide, I wonder if it's not about the same in the lower class as it is in the upper class. 
I wonder. You know, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know if that's really the factor because I think there's quite a few people. Like they said, Mexico is one of the happiest countries on earth, and it was also like not a very wealthy country. It's but like, they have community. Yeah, I think there's there's a benefit to that that we don't recognize because we're so wrapped up in the idea of accumulating money, hmm. accumulating dollars that we forget like that's only part of wealth. Like the really intelligent wealth is keeping the vibe good as long as possible. Whether it's happiness with friends, happiness with coworkers, happiness with what you do for a living, pride in, in your accomplishments, whatever the fuck it is that, that it takes to well, keep feeling included mm -hmm. in yeah. a group of people. That's huge. That's huge for everybody. People have always wanted to deny that. Everybody wants to be the rugged individualist, but that's stupid. Well, that's our that's our whole mythology in this country. It's the you know the guy riding off alone into the sunset. That's America. That's the cool guy in every movie. Is the guy who doesn't need the chick. <laughs> right. You never you know see him I mean? with a buddy. He's got one black buddy, and that guy dies in the first act. Yeah. Somehow or another, he just gets on a horse and it's like, <laughs> I gotta go. Just gets on that fucking horse. <laughs> Did you see that commercial? And I would rarely quote a commercial or think one is funny, but it's like this chick and she's saying goodbye to a guy and a, it's a hell, it's an insurance commercial, no. and she's in like a big prairie dress with a bonnet, and he's the real cowboy and he's putting his hat on and it's like uh, I got to go off into the sunset and she's pulling his leg, no, no, and then wow. he rides off towards the sunset and then he just falls off his horse. <laughs> it's just so fucking immediate, uh, so funny. Um, yeah, but that's it, man. Being being loners um, is it's an important thing, I think. As as comedians, obviously, that's a solo craft. Podcasting is you know a solo craft, but at the same time, to feel part of a group. And I think like you and I have both gone to the comedy store. Uh, it's become part of our lives. Mine for the first time, yours for the second act, and. It's like a great feeling to be doing your solo thing, but you're surrounded by other people that have the same background and are following the same path. And, you know, you yeah. really feel very included there. Yeah, it's a really good vibe. It's a, it's a way better vibe than it was the first time I was there. Yeah. It's like, I really believe it's the Internet. I, I think the Internet has uh, inspired more people to try stand-up that were on, like, maybe the right frequency to, right. Be, to become a comic. They recognize in their own personality all the shit that we talk about that's wrong with us. They're like, oh, maybe I'm just a comic. Like, maybe... Like, I might be able to do that. I make people laugh at work. I might I'd literally be able to do that. I think more people are inspired by that. And then also, when you hear a bunch of comics doing these podcasts, talking about comedy like as an art form and what's involved in it, and you kind of get a sense. Like, this guy described it to me, and he became an open micer, and now he's actually a working comic. He started out doing it from hearing us talk about it on the podcast. Yeah. He's been doing comedy, like, I think he said, like, two and a half years now. But he said it's like taking a master's class in comedy. You listen to Bill Burr talk about how he writes jokes. You listen to Greg Fitzsimmons talk about the differences between his act now and his act then, where the errors are. You get Joey Diaz talking about like how he learned to let go mm -hmm. and how he had fear when he was on stage and always worried right. about people accepting him. And one day he was like, fuck you. And it, I remember that turnaround for Joey. There's this like, radical turnaround where he was always really funny off stage. But he had a hard time being funny on stage. And then it was like... <sighs> like 99 somewhere around then 98 99 boom he figured it out yeah <laughs> just like out of nowhere right he went quicker than i've ever seen anybody go from having a hard time on stage to destroying yeah like i remember he gained a lot of weight coincidentally at that same time that was how didn't give a fuck he got yeah that's when he went from like 210 pounds to like 
like over 300 pounds like in a year but god damn was he funny yeah yeah i've seen it happen with guys and uh you know like jim norton man he haunted the the comedy cellar in those clubs for a decade you know 12 years something before he got any real traction and then when he when he found his voice i mean the guy's He's just fucking great. He's phenomenal. Yeah, he's a really good comic, man. I saw him in Austin, and it, it was uh, a good thing for me to see because I was doing sets that maybe were, like, too long. Yeah. And he did, like, 55, 50, 55 minutes and just murdered it. And I'm like, that's a good amount of time because yeah. you don't get tired of a guy. You know, like, I know and people are tired of hearing me talking. And yeah. Going, but you always feel like there's this borderline between wanting to give them their money's worth and just, like, even a great movie sucks after three and a half hours, yeah, right. you know, or whatever it is for comedy, an hour and ten minutes, or whatever the number is. Yeah. But seeing him uh, in uh, Austin was great because I, I hadn't gone to like a show, like sit down and watch a show mm -hmm. in a while. It always been like I'm at a set. Oh, who's on? You know. Oh, blah blah blah's on. Oh, let's go peek in real quick. But to sit down and watch like the whole show, his whole set was really fun. Yeah. It's really fun. That is weird to sit down. Like I just great. was in Vegas with some friends. And Stephen Wright was playing, so we said, "Fuck, man!" I mean, how was it? It was great. It was great. God damn! You know, he was doing a lot of new shit, and just, you know, everyone was high. Of course. And it was just this perfect match. And then uh, he hung out with us after the show for a while. I told him my friend, my friend got so baked he fell asleep during the show. <laughs> and so Stephen came out. And he goes, "How'd you guys like the show?" And I go, "My friend Dan fell asleep." <laughs> and Steve Wright could not stop laughing. He's like, because he's he's been on my podcast, and he's just like, I, in all the years I've done this, I've never had anybody like throw somebody under the bus like that. <laughs> <laughs> and he just kept talking about it for like fifteen minutes. It's a funny thing, like about people don't want to admit they were asleep. All right, all right. You know, oh, I fell asleep during your show. You're like, in Vegas. A, yeah. Of course, you fall asleep. You've been up for seventy-two hours. <laughs> it's the first time you sat still in seventy-two hours. And Stephen Wright, if you're gonna like that, that's a that's not like a Kevin Hart like right. lot of explosion. Yeah. Stephen Wright is the guy. Yeah. Who, you yeah. know, like <laughs> I used to work in a fire hydrant factory. Couldn't park anywhere near the place. <laughs> <laughs> he was like the first Twitterer. <laughs> he was. You know, his comedy was Twitter comedy. Like easily, he would have been a monster on Twitter. Yeah. If he put just those jokes on Twitter. Yeah. But then they would, you know, you would ruin the bits. Yeah, maybe he should go back and just take all the shit he never put out and just start tweeting it because you know that guy doesn't tweet. He probably doesn't give a shit. Well, didn't he write it? He was tweeting a whole book. Oh, really? Yeah. He was doing this weird thing where he was tweeting a whole book, 140 characters at a time. Damn. That's really cool. I love yeah, that idea. I, yeah, I think he would write like a new 140 characters every day. Oh, he, oh, he wasn't just like he wrote it and he was releasing it. He was I actually. Know. I don't think so. I think he was doing it like, how was he doing it? How many tweets a day was he doing? He probably had a limited number of tweets he was doing every day. Yeah. He explains it on Conan. He explains it on Conan. We can't play that though. We'll get in trouble. Yeah. But whatever it is, uh, he tweeted a book. He's such a, such a fucking weirdo. That's amazing. You know? He's the guy, man, that changed Boston comedy. That was the one guy that changed the whole scene. At least if you listen to uh, like the guys that grew up during that time yeah. and that Franz Alamito documentary. When Stand Up Stood Out. It's a great documentary. Yeah, it's really it's cool. Really, Especially for guys job. like us because it was like the generation right before we started. Yeah, it really let us know that like how lucky we, we got. Like You and I have talked about this before, but... 
we came along at the perfect time like ever in the history of comedy except maybe now now it's pretty goddamn good time yeah they're making a lot less money though me and you were making money right out of the gate hey you got a car you got 10 minutes here's 50 bucks kid there was so many satellite rooms yeah we could we were living in boston and we could go in any direction there was probably two or three hundred rooms yeah right between boston comedy between sherry hirsch between um, Norm Lafoe, Norm Lafoe Billy, love Downs. Norm Lafoe, Billy Downs, Paul Barkley. They all had like Boston Comedy, Barry Katz's organization had many, Barry many, alone many had rooms. 50 rooms probably. They had so many rooms. So there's, I mean, may, maybe exaggerating saying hundreds, but it was more than 100 rooms all around this area. And so we could just go to a different place all the time. They always needed comics. And if you were, if you were a good comic and you were reliable, and again, if you had a car and you would pick up the headliner... <laughs> you would literally call a guy like Mike Clark, and he would fill seven weekends yeah. on the spot in one phone call. And then you'd call uh, Barry Katz, and he'd fill seven weekends. And like, you know, in a in you know a week, you talk to five agents, and your year is booked six nights a week. And then all you got to do is play softball, go to the movies. Yeah. And drive to the gig at night. That's a lot of guys fall into that. Mike Clark had some of the craziest fucking gigs, dude. I did a restaurant for him once. I was the one opening week, and it never happened again after me. It was it was one of the <laughs> you worst. You opened and closed I it. I opened and closed it uh, because I told him how it was set up, and he agreed that they couldn't do a show there. I was yeah. like, you just literally can't do a show there because you do stand up at a lounge. First of all. Nobody told these people there's going to be stand-up. So they're sitting there waiting to get seated. It was the biggest seafood restaurant in, like, this part of the Cape. So there would be, you know, this giant fucking, like, room where people are seating, waiting for them to call their seat and their name. Oh, no shit. So when they're calling their seat and their name, or their, uh, their name and their, you know, Johnson Party of Six, they're doing it on the same microphone as you. So you're on stage. You're on stage. I'm on stage. And uh, it became a joke after a while. I'm like, this is like truly hilarious. Because you'd be right. And I'm telling her, Johnson, party of six. Your table's ready. Johnson, party of six. Your table's ready. Johnson, Johnson, party of six. You're like, oh, my God. I mean, I'm not joking, man. Because they're not even in the same room as you. So they have no fucking idea. Oh, they're idea. not even in the same no, room? No, no, no. It's a big place. So, like, you're in this giant lounge area with these families. They're, you're talking yeah. about blowjobs. Yeah. And these families are like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> and then... That's the, surreal. It's so surreal. And in the middle of your act, just right in the middle, out of nowhere, there's six birds and Johnson, party of six, your table's ready. It was the worst. It was one of the. It wasn't. Uh, it wasn't the worst because the people were friendly. You know. Can gave, you imagine? Just go back to that same place now, and you know it's the same restaurant with the same PA system, the whole thing. Bring cameras and film your one-hour special with <laughs> with them calling for Johnson Party. <laughs> and try to work around just it. Just work the Johnsons. They're heading into the family. Hey, nice jacket. Well, you know what? If people knew you were filming, though, they would come up with stupid names. Yeah. And it's just so someone would right. yell out their name. Dick Hurt. Mike Hunt. Party of six. Your table's ready. Mike Hunt. They would probably hate that kind of comedy out there. Even no matter how oh, famous yeah. you get. There's like a really conservative part of... Oh, the Cape? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the Cape is very family. It's very Norman Rockwell. Very tight. Yeah. Buttoned up. Right. <laughs> they leave the Cape and... 
my friend dated this girl from the Cape. She she became a, a whore and a crackhead. She was this sweet, like, preppy girl from the Cape, came from money, moved to Venice Beach. Ooh. And all of a sudden, she was getting skinny, and all of a sudden, she had a herpes virus on her lip, and he got it from her. And then, and, then, and then he found, I think he found an ad. Like, she had the newspaper with the classified section where she had put an ad. This is back before the internet for herself and she was selling herself selling herself and then she came by and then so they broke up and she came by like a, a year later breaker. with another dude she weighed like you know 90 pounds wow all That's from the cape huh? from the cape man well there's a lot of sheltered people up in that neck of the woods it's beautiful though oh it's great god it's so nice in the summer especially and in the winter there's something about it it's just so gray and the water is so unforgiving. You know, yeah. it's, there's something cool. But even being cold, walking around the beach in the winter was always weird for me. I enjoy it. Yeah, you, you look at the trees and with no, no leaves on them and they just look strong. Everything is strong because it's just getting battered by wind and cold. And It also, like, it gives you this sense of cycle that I think we miss out on a bit yeah. up here. I think the cycle of seasons is much more normal than no seasons. Mm -hmm. And what we're doing is we're sort of adapting our our like perceptions of nature on this really unrealistic spot. Yeah. You know, a spot where it fucking never rains. It's stalled out. Yeah. I mean, it gets kind of hot for a while, but yeah. just go near the water, you'll be fine. No, you need a, you need the cycle. That's in my house we celebrate my wife's uh, menstrual flow. You know, change <laughs> clothes. Like fall, we'll go fall. And you go then, fall colors? Yeah, fall colors on her September, <laughs> on her September <laughs> dripping. Did you see that? Um, I don't know if this is bullshit or not. Somebody sent it to me on Twitter and I looked at it. was about to get in my car. I was like, what? It was something about women uh, that don't want to be forced to wear maxi pads or tampons. They think it's bullshit. So they're just going natural. They're just doing natural flow. Like, they're literally in your face about their period blood dripping out of their underwear. They don't give a fuck. Yeah, they just wear, like, fluffy socks? I think they just let it drip down their leg. I mean, it might be bullshit. I might be getting trolled right now because I just looked at it, like, really briefly. Yeah. So take a look at it there, young Jamie, and you tell me with your discerning eye. I could see that because, I, I, yeah, well, the, the, the tampon, the, that's the way you stick inside, right? The tampon? Yes, Gregory. I would get confused. <laughs> Um, the tampon causes toxic shock syndrome. It can if you leave it in, right? Is that what happens? I don't know. I didn't even okay. know what it was. Help catalyze the movement. Oh, my God. This is real? Benefits of sustainable menstrual options. What is this sustainable? I'm really tired of people using that word. I think the people that use the word sustainable and the people that use the word handcrafted should get together and go fuck <laughs> themselves. I'm tired yeah, of right. both of those terms. All natural. You're sustainable. What are you taught? What? Human beings devour the planet. Stop yeah. with your sustainable. Yeah. Oh, this is better. It's better for the environment. One dumb truck of waste per person versus a few dozen reusable pads. Reduce pollution. Oh, they're reusable pads. Hold on a second. Barf. Could you imagine your your cooter is blowing into this fucking wad of cotton every, every month? You're scrubbing out the bacteria and the blood. It's intertwined in all the fibers of your cooch area <laughs> of your underwear. I mean, get the fuck out of here with this. Listen, we live in 2015. If we still use paper to write down on... We can afford a little cotton to plug your clam with, okay? I'll kick in a few bucks for that. <laughs> I'm on board. I mean, they, yeah, there's a few things. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That... Look at that picture. Hold on a second. 
Pull that picture back up. What did it say? The stat? Oh, my God. It says a disposable tampon pad user produces a dump truck of menstrual waste in their lifetime. And it's showing you this giant fucking dump truck, which probably doesn't have only tampons in it. But That would be great is if every time you threw out a tampon, you had to throw it in your truck. <laughs> every woman gets one truck. And once it's filled, we kill you. Yeah, you have like a, a yearly dump of your, your tampons. <laughs> like for a year, they have to stay in your backyard in a big pink barrel <laughs> just dogs barking from all over the neighborhood yeah you know how you have like trash is like one color the recyclables like brown like lawn you know like lawn trimmings and stuff is brown yeah everybody has different it would be like once a year they pick up your soiled menstrual plugs that's a weird thing with guys being scared of menstrual blood i've never really understood that it doesn't bother me at all i mean not menstrual even a little blood? bit not even a little bit I don't get it. Doesn't bother me. Some dudes freak though. I had a friend and he would fucking be like, I'm never banging a chick on her period. Get out of here. I'm like, so your girlfriend really wants to have sex. She's on her period. You won't have sex with her. He's like, fuck that. And I want you on that shit. I think it's even better. Whoa. Ooh, Greg is dirty. Look but like we were, well, dirty boy. we were down in Florida one time, me and, uh, you know, Mike Gibbons, my buddy Mike. Mm -hmm. And this other guy, the guy whose girlfriend became a hooker, as a matter of fact. <sighs> and there was a, uh, there was a water slide park and it was, it was locked. And we got through the chain link fence and we went in and my buddy turned the water on. It was like a real rudimentary roadside water park. And we started going down the slide in the middle of the night. It's like fucking, you know, midnight. And uh, I remember thinking like, I would not have had that much fun during the day. And I think that's what menstrual sex is like. You're not supposed to be in there. So it's like a, it's a special treat. <laughs> a special treat. <laughs> but a lot of girls are hornier when they're on their period. Oh, yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. That's right. Would you... They push back. Let me ask you this, in all sincerity, because I've debated this myself. Would you, um, if they one day figure out a way to manipulate human bodies in, in such an incredible way that they can actually turn you into a woman, like and turn you back into a woman, back into Greg again, like would you try to... Would you be a woman for of a course. day? Of course. Yes. For a whole day or how long did you, how long did you do, do it for? I'd do it for a week. A week? Yeah. Would, you take, yeah. would you take the D? Fuck yeah. Would you really? No. No, I would do the woman thing. <laughs> I would definitely masturbate relentlessly. You would stick something in there. I would go to some spas. I'd go to a lot of spas where women are walking around Okay, naked. what about this? How about this? What if, here's, we went, we're going deep. What if you, they figure out a way to manipulate genetics to the point where you could become your wife and your wife could become you, like literally become you and then fuck you? Would you agree to that? No, no way. <laughs> you wouldn't let your wife be you and you be your wife? Just for a day? No, no. Why not? Because I could never look at her the same way again. But it's her. I don't want to be inside there. But I want the mystery. There's so many se little, little <laughs> secrets that women have. And there's ah. things you wonder about their soul and what they're really thinking when you're talking and all those little subtle things. I don't, I don't want that. Hmm. Uh, I see your point. I don't want to know that. That's beautiful. You're a man of, like, you love romance, mystery. Yeah. That's yeah. beautiful. I love my wife. I'm not even talking about your wife. I think in, in everything in life. Yeah. Fifty Shades of Grey, there was, in the book, there was a tampon sex scene, and they took it out in the movie. How dare they? <laughs> that movie made a trillion dollars. That movie cured the deficit. Yeah, right. <laughs> I know. It's fucking crazy. <laughs> Well, what, why do you women. think it did? You think because you think guys went like they, did? Did women drag their men to it, or is that just women going? Mostly women, I think, probably. Right. 
And uh, psychologically, if I had to analyze, with all due respect, and this is, again, just my opinion, I think um, the reason why those, like, savage-type sexual scenarios, like, savage, lustful, crazy things, you know, like ball gags and spitting in your mouth and, you know, like a lot of the crazy shit that seems to excite people unexpectedly, you know, when you talk about, like, the average American woman and then you talk about them, I don't know exactly what Fifty Shades of Grey is. I'm just talking out of my ass. But I, I read understand it. it was a lot of, like, time. You read the whole thing? Well, I was hired to do a parody of it. Oh. So I read it. Well, tell me, because I would assume that it's, like, a lot of, like, choking and, yeah. you know, abuse But it's stuff. really light. It's, it's light. Really light. Yeah, I mean, it's, the funny thing is, is there's no, I described it as if you had a seven-year-old and you showed them nothing but porn and then you said, write a story. <laughs> it's so inane. There's no fucking story. It's just a, it's an excuse for a rich guy to completely humiliate a, a college girl. And women get off on it because he's so beautiful and wealthy. And But there's no, nothing happened. I mean, I don't want to ruin the ending. I, don't fuck it up. Spoiler alert. Literally nothing happens in the I think the everybody end. knows already. I don't think they care. It's but, just... It's just the same kind of shit you'd see at Cinemax. I think there is a, a, a lot of women, I think there are a lot of women, um, that don't feel sexually attractive. They don't, like, they don't feel like anyone ever feels like that with them. Like, anyone has ever overcome with, like, desire to be with them. Yeah. They look at themselves as, like, God, I wish that was happening to me. And they develop this, like, intense need for romance. It's like the classic story of romance novel readers. Like, what do they look like? Hmm. It's usually, like, an overweight woman. Like, that's what a lot of people think about when they think of someone who reads romance novels. That's yeah. what comes to mind. Not necessarily true, but... The idea being that, like, for a lot of people, like, that is so attractive. This, this, you know, this crazy, maniacal, passionate, little, even disgusting and abusive situation between a guy and a girl. Because there's so much lust there. Yeah. There's, like, lust and depravity. And they're missing that. They're not getting, you know, they're not getting anybody that wants to be with them and touch them. That's, like, a fundamental need that people have that we kind of ignore a lot when we're looking at like s social trends and the way people behave like the fun there's a fundamental need that we have to touch each other mm -hmm. like it's a hundred percent necessary like you, if you if you take people and you give them no contact with other people they literally go bananas yeah we need to be around each other I always hug sad people Aww. like if I meet somebody and they just seem really sad I not right then and there but the next time I see them I'll throw a hug on them, and it's amazing to see the change. They fucking like you so much. Oh, yeah, man. I've told this story, but just in the, the, the nature of uh, this uh, discussion, I got a, the first job that I ever did in Hollywood, that stupid hardball show. I had this situation where I came out here, didn't have any friends, and uh, I was out here filming it for like two weeks, and... Uh, didn't have a girlfriend in L.A., didn't know anybody, so I'd just go to the comedy store and go home. And we had this scene that we were doing with me and this girl, and she gave me a hug. And she didn't even give me a hug, like a sexual hug. It wasn't like I was attracted. I mean, she was very attractive, but it wasn't like that. She was like, aww. She came over, gave me a hug, and my whole body just tingled. Like, not sexually. Because you'd been just so like, alone. Love. Like, I felt love. Yeah. Like, I felt like a warm hug from a person. I'm like, God damn. And I realized, like, right there immediately, I was like, I need this in my yeah, life. Right. Like, this is something, like, if you don't have, you're, you feel dull. Your, your life feels dulled down. Yeah. 
And unfortunately, whether it's because of genetics or because of diet or because of fucking fill in the blank, where some people just aren't that attractive to other people. And then that's not a politically correct thing to say, but that's exactly what it is. And so they're, they're super excited about someone being excited about them. There's an app where you can hug people, where people meet, they meet up in a public place and they, here, look it up. That's hilarious. They, they meet in a public place and they just come, they say hello, they hug, and then they walk away. Oh my God. And it's worldwide. That's insane. <laughs> That is so insane. <laughs> and I heard the guy getting interviewed and they were like, well, does it sometimes like then lead to sex? Like you would naturally think he's like, no, most people just, they just wanted the hug. That's why they went on the app. That's all they wanted. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's going to end badly. Well, my son. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. That'll end bad. Cuddle Curious free app makes it easy to score hugs. Cuddler. Oh, that's cute. Isn't that hilarious? Like it is, hugging people's nice. It's just the problem is there's a lot of like overly needy people out there, a lot of crazy people out there, a lot yeah. of mean people out there, a lot of insult people that will insult you just to get a rise out of you. I and mean, that's, yeah. that's the world. And girls have to deal with that way more than we do. Like it's the worst thing in the world when you see a guy hit on a girl and then the girl refutes him. And you know, fuck you, bitch. You know, I didn't like you anyway. Yeah. You're like, that is disgusting. Yeah. That's like, you realize, like, guys like that are the reason why chicks are fucking weirded out by dudes. Yeah. You know, someone who hits on you, and then when you say no, they get angry at mm -hmm. you. They all of a sudden, like, from I want to fuck you to I want to hit you. Mm -hmm. You know? And that's something, fortunately, we don't have to deal with. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, you can see it. It's an insecurity. Obviously, the guy, the guy got hurt. And so he lashed out with anger. It could be that for sure. I mean, certainly that's, I think there's a lot of factors. I think that's, that's a big part of it though, definitely. I think the other part of it is that like, I think for uh, a lot of men, it's like very frustrating to try to figure out how to get someone to choose you over, you know, X guys, X number it's of It's a competition. Guys. Yeah. I mean, and you're for, losing. Yeah. I mean, that's. The reason why men dress the way they dress, I mean, a big part of it for them is like to try to look good. You know, like guys who wear the right watch or guys who have the right shoes or guys who wear like a really slick jacket. Like you're doing it to look good. You're mm. doing, I mean, that's why you're doing it. You're doing it to be more attractive. You know, whether you're doing it for yourself or you're doing it for your business image that's ultimately for yourself, you're trying to be more attractive. And no matter how unattractive you are, you're trying to be more attractive because yeah. you're trying to, you know, it's nature. You're trying to attract the best mate that you can get. It's crazy that guys will, some guys will go like all out, like with diamonds and shit and like giant watches with crusted in diamonds. And they know like, look, I am only going to attract dumb hoes. Yeah. Like that's it. <laughs> But that, that's what I'm shooting for, right? you know, and they'll like walk around with like giant gold encrusted or diamond encrusted necklaces and shit. Yeah. Especially they, black they pull guys up can in pull a car. that off. Right. Yeah, they could pull it off. Way better than we can. Um, you know, at certain cars, you see a guy pull up in a certain car and for some guys it makes sense. You're like, yeah, that guy belongs in a Porsche. And then you see another yeah. guy and you're like, you're, I'm not going to say it, but you're, <laughs> you're not supposed to be in a Porsche. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody who really likes a Porsche should be in a Porsche, but Porsche. No, but they want to be. No, you shouldn't be saying. in a Porsche, right? You should be in a Porsche. Well, it's a Porsche. Is it? Yeah, that's what you're supposed to say. Is Porsche. It, yeah. But it, there's still a lot of people that are like car journalists, like Chris Harris, who calls it Porsche. 
Is it's it Porsche though? Is it Jaguar or Jaguar? Depends on what country. And this this is America, motherfucker. It's, America. it's Jaguar. That's right. Okay? It's made out of good, it good no American aluminium. Jaguar. Jag. Yeah, that sounds like you're cursing somebody out. <laughs> Jaguar. Jaguar. You Jaguar. Fitzsimmons. Yeah, I got a. I gotta get that fucking Mustang. I saw one yesterday. The new ones. The new Wait ones. for the new ones. Yeah, they're coming out. Fiftieth year want. anniversary. Yeah, this is what you want. You want the GT three fifty. Don't fuck around. Do not pass go. The Shelby GT three fifty coming. Shelby out. coming out very soon, Gregory. How much? This is what you want. I don't know how much. Stop with the money. You're gonna live forever. Stop. You make good <laughs> money. This is what you need to do. You need to get five hundred American naturally aspirated horsepower under your balls. Yeah. <laughs> Boom, boom. Dude, it's doing Nürburgring times, like lo low numbers, man. They had like spectacular results yeah. with this car. It's like got it's independent suspension for the first time in a long time for Mustangs. Like they had it for a while and then they went back to the live rear axle, I guess. I don't know enough about that, but this new suspension is supposed to be incredible. This car's coming out soon, son. Don't fuck around. Or get one of those Challenger Hellcats. I drove one of those in Denver. How's the visibility out the back of those? Good enough. <laughs> No, it doesn't matter. America. Nothing's coming Look up behind that. you. Look at that fucking car. Oh. 2016 Shelby GT350. Oh, I like the back. Good lord, that makes my it's dick a, hard. It's a fastback. It's a fucking American car, son. That's that's real American muscle, but like super sophisticated now. They're making these cars like this car where they're American muscle, meaning like stupid high horsepower, V8, awesome sound, rumble, but... They handle that car. Fucking handles, man. That's how a much fast money do car. they spend making that roar sound right? You know, they got all kinds of acoustics experts on that muffler. Well, you, they That's probably no do. Accident. Yeah, they probably do. I think so. Well, especially the Shelby has that awesome deep throaty like. Yeah. They're so, they sound so good. V8 sounds always the best. Like, you can have a beautiful V6, like Porsches or sixes, flat six. They sound really good, too. But that sounds the best. The yeah. American V8 rumble. It's just fucking ball draining. Yeah. That's uh, something about that engine sound, for whatever reason, actually stimulates testosterone in men. There's been studies done. Oh, on I'm it. sure. That's insane. Absolutely. The sound of an engine. Can well, it's like force. a lion roaring. You probably hear that, and you gotta grow some. You gotta grow some balls fast. Yeah, man. If you had lions all around your bedroom, I bet you'd have so much testosterone. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> imagine, imagine if you slept in like you had this like super thick wire cage like really fucking thick where lines definitely can't get through it no way and that's your walls and your the rest of your house like all on the outside there's an outside wall way way out there but most of it is a lion sanctuary yeah so where you live is like the outside is like a house but the inside like where it faces the lion sanctuary is all wire mesh and it's all around your bed so, so it's like your so, walls are insulated with lions. And you walk out there, and then you sleep. You walk out there, like a long path through this th thick wire mesh, and you sleep in the middle of the lion sanctuary. And periodically throughout the day, they release animals for the lions to chase and kill in front of you. <laughs> <laughs> You're brushing your teeth, and you see some poor giraffe 
stumble out, look left, look right, and you, and you see them run towards it and take it down like, fucking Christ. You hear bones snap, and one of them's got the neck, and the thing's flopping around. It's trying to kick, and they're tearing its guts apart. And you're 20 feet away. And your chest is rumbling from yeah. the noise of like, Rah. You can barely hear it over your electric toothbrush. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just ripping apart some giraffe right in front of you. Blood Fuck. splatters on your face. Fighting each other over chunks of meat. Yeah. <laughs> the new male comes into town. There's a fucking brawl. Ah. And, and you're just getting manly. You're either shrinking from it and becoming a complete <laughs> pussy, or you're growing ah! hair on your chest and you're going... You would look like an Armenian bodybuilder. That's who you'd look like. Just hairy, thick. Right. You'd get angry. You're not even working out. You've never lifted a weight and you're ripped. Your body's just prepared for death every second of every day. You just hear that roar in the middle of the night. Plus, you're inhaling all no. that the, the pheromones that they're oh, spraying yeah. out the whole time. Just they probably piss on your fucking cage. <laughs> They'll probably spray your cage. You're probably gonna have to call in the maid and shit. There's some lion piss all <laughs> over this yeah, thing. Can you mop up the pheromones? I just want to take a nap. I'm, I'm. You know what? I'm not getting pissed on tonight. I'm putting up the shades. <laughs> I'm just, you know, I'm not avoiding the, the lions. I just don't want them peeing on me. I can handle the lions. I just don't want them pissing on my head while I'm sleeping. That's it. Yeah, they will They will piss on things, right? Like a regular cat does. Well, especially they, they after they fight, then they spray the area. Yeah, they just won. It's fucking weird to watch, man. It's like, what, 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 where's that even coming from? Yeah. You know, what? you got an extra hole back there? Like, what is that? How's that work? Yeah. Because they spray out the back, like, out of their ass. Yeah, right? some kind of little gland back there. How bizarre. Yeah. Like, they have almost like an extra dick. Like, a, an extra, like, a blowhole on their dick. Well, it's I guess it's like pre-semen, <laughs> right? I don't know where it comes from. I'd never have thought of it. I had a cat that used to spray, too. Really? Oh, man. I had a feral cat, and at one point in time... Um, I had a, a great veterinarian. Luckily, uh, Dr. Craig, uh, unfortunately, he died. Drunk driver hit her, man. Fucking bummer. Oh, that sucks. The, he was the nicest guy. He was hilarious. Like, a really funny guy. Loved, loved, loved animals. Anyway, I had this feral cat, and when it was time, like, most of the time I could pet him, but there was occasionally times when you try to pick him up, he'll fight you to the death. Yeah. He's like, just fucking freak out and run away. Yeah. And uh, I had to get him to the vet because it was time to get him fixed because he was pissing in my fucking house. He Smell like, nasty? Yeah, we'd pick up his back, like his, pick up his back, like his ass and his tail, and you would just see it psst, come out. You're like, you little motherfucker! Yeah. And when I trapped him in the bathroom, he was just spraying everywhere, dude. Just spraying. But I never looked at where it came from because I was in mortal danger. Yeah. Like I was trying to figure out how to get this little guy in a basket. What I did was I threw a blanket over him. I wrapped him up in the blanket, and then I stuffed the blanket inside of a laundry basket, and then I carried him out. I carried him to the vet in a fucking laundry basket wrapped in a blanket. And was he, like, going crazy Oh, the my time? God, he was going bananas. He was going bananas. <laughs> He's trying to kill me. He was trying to kill me. But he was my buddy. It was the weirdest thing, man. Uh, and no one else could even touch this cat. Yeah. If you came over my, hat, he, my house, he would run from you. But he would sit in my lap. I could pet him up. I could pick him up. And once I started petting him, he would purr so loud. But it was like the person like never got touched. Yeah. Like once, like he, it was the weirdest thing. He would go from <laughs> scared of everything. You pick him up. Dude, it's all right. It's all right. <laughs> 
like immediately, yeah. like really loud purr. Yeah. Like the poor guy, his whatever months of his life where he was wild before I got a hold of him, just fucked his head up. Yeah. Like trying to maintain in your home a feral cat is a very unique situation. Yeah. Taught me a lot. Did it? Uh, did the behavior change after he got neutered? He never did. Behavior never changed. No. I mean, it. He was always cool only with me. That's it. No other people. That's it. He liked my cats. My cats and him were very close. You know, he would hang out with them. Everybody was groovy. But there was no other person that was allowed to pick him up. He mm -hmm. just wouldn't have it. And he wouldn't have it sometimes from me. Yeah. Like, he, dude, he knew me from the time he was a little baby. And I had him for, like, at least seven or eight years. He How did you find him? My friend found him. Oh. Her and her boyfriend were living in this apartment. And underneath it, there was, like, a cat that had given birth to a bunch of kittens. And so, like, she kind of freaked out, like, oh, my God, these poor little things, they're wild, and they're hissing at people. So they set traps for them because they were like, you know, they were, well, they'd go out to their car, and there's, like, this litter of kittens, like, living under your house. Like, yeah. it's, it was really depressing to her. Yeah. So her and her boyfriend decided to trap them, trap the cats, and, you know, they were little demons, man. <laughs> Just fucking hissing and sputtering. And then you realize, like, man, once you if you're that fucked up from, like, that, like, first couple months like your view of the world is that dangerous i mean you're literally wild in the street no one's petting you you know you're not getting a little can of tuna in front of you oh do you like it no it's full-on instinct you're eating bugs you're eating anything that moves and you're fighting other cats to get to the bugs mm -hmm. yeah and you know your parents are trying to bring you back food you're barely staying alive mm. and so he goes from that to all of a sudden he's hanging out with me in my house and he's eating cat food <clears throat> You know, he's got cat food every day. You can't believe the food's still here every yeah. day, you know? It was really weird. So he, will he overeat if you leave out food? He's dead now. But uh, he uh, didn't overeat. No. Mm -hmm. no, he, you know, he normalized to the point where, like, walking around the house, he didn't look like he was constantly in terror. But if you got too close to him, he would be like, what the fuck are you planning? You know, it's like, it was, when he was by himself, he was fine. Mm. Like he was cool. He would just chill out and he would, you'd catch him like sunning himself by the window. Everything was groovy. Mm -hmm. And so when people got too close to him, you just wasn't old, would, never was totally sure. Yeah. Never was totally sure. You know, it reminded me of when you talked about grabbing him in the laundry basket. Do you remember back in Boston, you were out one night with Jennifer and I was home and I swear to God on my father's grave this happened. I rented Batman at the Blockbuster <laughs> uh, and I put it in. And I'm sitting at home and I'm watching it. And then uh, all of a sudden I see this shadow. And then I turn my head and I see another shadow. And I look up and there's a bat flying around the apartment. And I'm like, what? And I'm, I'm scared shitless of bats. Like, it's like my thing. <laughs> and it's like, ever since I was a kid, my aunt had this barn near her and they had bats. And they would be telling me they were fruit bats. And if they bite you, you'll get rabies and you'll die. And the, and oh, so, and no. we would always be outside playing tag at night. And I would, the fucking bats would fly by and I'd freak out. And, and so I'm alone in the apartment and there's a bat flying around and Batman is on TV. And so, uh, all I knew is they go in your hair, which I think is like not even true. So I put on a baseball cap backwards and I had on sunglasses and a tennis racket. <laughs> sunglasses. I didn't want to, <laughs> I didn't want him going in my eyes. He's going to go for my eyes. That's so, so funny. So I'm running around the apartment. I'm swinging at him. He's taking off. He's like, you know, he's just, they're erratic the way they fly. You don't know where they're fucking going. 
And this goes on for like 10 minutes, and then there's like a standoff, and I'm waiting. <laughs> and then I hear you coming up the stairs, and you came in, and you open the door, and you go, what the fuck are you doing? I got this a bat in here. And you just you just grabbed the tennis racket out of my hand, and you walked up, and he was in the window, and you just bashed him once, and he just went down. And then you just walked over, and you had takeout in your hand, and you just went into the kitchen and started eating it. And I'm standing there with sunglasses and a hat on. I remember that. That's hilarious. Uh, I was, that's hilarious. I probably wouldn't even killed it if you weren't already trying to kill it. I think you you might. I called the animal people to come get it because it looked like it was stunned. Ooh. So you know I don't what? know if he was actually dead. It might have been sick. Oh, you yeah. mean once I hit it? Yeah. No, it was dead. It was dude. probably dead. Yeah, I remember I killed it. Yeah. I remember I'm like, I'm not going to have this thing suffer. Right. I don't remember what I did, but I, I remember there was some hitting involved. I'm pretty sure it was the tennis racket. Could have been. Yeah. Yeah. I but you were that. fearless. I was like, fuck, man. Get well, I don't like I don't like bats, but I, I do know that on very rare, very rare occasions, bats have rabies. Yeah, it's very very rare. So like like same thing with like squirrels. Very rare they have rabies, but I'm not taking any fucking chances. I'm not getting rabies, dude. Right. You get rabies, you have some crazy shot they put through your stomach. You know, you can call, in retrospect probably could have tried to save the thing, throw mm. throw, but it might have been sick too. And yeah, I'd have I flown know. in. There was a lot of bats <clears throat> in that neighborhood in Brookline. Yeah, there were. Raccoons, too, right? Remember a lot those of raccoons? raccoons? Yeah. Here yeah. in L.A., you get rats. Ooh. They're everywhere. The Hollywood Hills, apparently, is especially bad. Yeah, they're filled with them. Well, there probably isn't as many birds. You know, you don't see hawks flying around that much. You should see a lot more hawks. Mm. And they're, they're not around, so they're not killing the, uh, the vermin. Well, it's also, unfortunately, coyotes, too. People hate coyotes, and I, you know, I'm not a fan because they will kill your dog right in front of you, and they would bite children if they could get away with it. Oh I mean, yeah, there's been many instances. I mean, they don't have like rules; they're just they're opportunists. And if yeah. you have a three year old and it's wandering around naked, a coyote will eat it. It's mm. just, I mean, it's a fucked up thing to say because most people don't leave their three year olds alone. But you know, coyotes are creepy, but they do keep rat populations down, and that like there is a balance that has to be. Unless we're gonna kill all the rats too, like we, we're just gonna be the executioners mm. of the fucking natural world. Yeah, like when doesn't when, work like doesn't that. doesn't work like that. So when you force coyotes out of neighborhoods, which I agree with, so it's a it's a two edged sword. Yeah, because I don't want coyotes killing my friend's dog. Yeah, you know, that's a sad thing. There's a uh, one of the guys that I think it was one of the guys that worked on Fear Factor. I forget who it was. In his neighborhood, this lady was walking her dog in uh, Brentwood, and this fucking coyote came running up behind her. She said she just heard click, 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 and she didn't even know what it was, and it just snatched her fucking dog right off the leash and ran with it. Yeah? Just grabbed it right in front of her. She screamed. She let go of the leash. The coyote ran off with her dog. Wow. Killed it right in front of her. Shit. Brazen. Brazen. Shit, that's brutal. Yeah. So I would rather have rat traps out than those little fucking cunty dog-eating monsters. Yeah. Yeah. They'll eat dogs, man. I mean, that's, that is well, shit, a, yeah. on the diet. Because I guess, are coyotes related to wolves? Or are they, Fuck yeah. They're, they're dogs. They're all dogs. Right. So Everything in, comes from wolves. Because you got to think, if you, can, if you come from a wolf and you're a, now a coyote, you're, you're pretty badass. And then you see an Americanized, like a small dog. They are not very tough. Yeah. You, you probably don't even see it as the same species as you. That's just an easy, soft lunch. Well, what's fucked is that coyotes are actually so clever that they will get dogs to think that they're their friends. Like, they come around, they hang out with them, they, they're right outside the fence. Yeah. Like, my neighbor has this little dog. He has a beagle. And he says the coyote comes out and the dog starts wagging its tail. Like, look, my friend is here. But meanwhile, that coyote will eat that beagle. 
The beagle thinks everybody's like him. You know, at four o'clock in the afternoon, the food gets put into a bowl mm -hmm. and his tail wags and he waddles his little fucking chubby body over to the bowl and he eats. And meanwhile, outside is this thing, his ribs are showing and it's getting big long face just designed for snatching shit up and it's like come on man come on outside and play yeah. hey i'm your friend mr beagle i like you come on out man look at my like, tail look at my tail yeah. look the door's open man what the door's open should i come out yeah 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 come on just use your nose use your nose open the door come on just grab him come here check this out check this out yeah. run with him oh yeah poor beagle i was on playing golf recently in this uh Coyote just came out on the course, Oof. just looked at us, Didn't wasn't scared at all. Yeah, they're, they're slippery because, you know, I'm not saying I hate them. I, I think there's something beautiful about their existence. Mm. I don't, I don't want to do it, but there's something beautiful about this, this animal that lives like just adjacent to civilization, yeah. intertwined slightly, mm -hmm. occasionally dips into their world and steals a cat, you know. Last ones <clears throat> to leave the party. See, they got one of my chickens. I watched it. Watched it jump over the fence with my chicken. Yeah? Yeah. Recently. It was, it jumped over this, it like, I had a fountain, and it jumped onto the fountain and then right over the fence. I got the fountain right up, like, one of those little portable little fountains. With so, the chicken in his mouth. Mm -hmm. Just boom. Just right over. It's like a he, nice meal for him, done it a hundred huh? times before. Yeah. I had a chicken in one of the, not in the regular pen, but in another box. And it was, uh, when chickens brood... You have to uh, you have to take them away from the rest of the chickens. Um, you got to take them out of their box. You got to force them to sit on a perch for like usually a day or two, and then they calm down. They they get out of it. But if you don't, they'll start picking their feathers off. And what it is is like females in the natural world of chickens, they want to fuck a rooster and they want the egg that they give. You know, they make an egg almost every day. But most of the time, those eggs are unfertilized. So the eggs that we eat are unfertilized eggs. I didn't even fucking know this. I was in my forties. I thought that all eggs could be chum chickens if you just laid on them, which is really retarded. I, just, <laughs> I had no idea that chickens just lay an egg every day, whether or not they're pregnant or not. I so just, how do they know which one to sit on? They don't. I mean, they, you know, when you leave the eggs there, some of them they'll like, I, I guess like some of them, time, sometimes they'll peck away at their eggs and they'll eat them. And you have to like make sure that they don't do that. They're really stupid, man. Yeah. They're stupid yeah. as fuck. But when they get broody, when they get broody is when they think that somehow or another one of these eggs, even though there's no rooster, is going to become a baby. Mm -hmm. So they sit on it and they don't want to get off of it. And then they start pecking at their belly and fluffing it up and it gets ugly. But you could fix it as long as you catch it early. You catch it early, you just put them on a perch. So it was a smaller box and the coyote got under it and smashed the bottom of it and stole the chicken. Huh. It's fucked up, man. Clever little cunt. You ever get attacked by a chicken? They never bit you? No, but if they did, that would be the end of their life. That re That's right. my rules. Right, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm, not, I'm just kidding. But, do you, oh, you don't you don't raise them to eat them? No, no. They're little, little, they're little pets. They're oh, little really? They're pets. Oh. They're pets that make food. I feel bad. I was I more would. sensitive to the loss of your chicken. No, I, I mean, I would. I would do that. I, I mean, you if name you eat them? chicken, yeah, I don't. My kids do. I don't, um, like, I don't have any desire to eat these chickens like they're cool i like yeah. having them around i like uh i like eating their eggs but it's a really weird thing that i buy other chicken from a grocery store like i'll go to a grocery store and buy chickens these completely murdered fucked up chicken you don't get to ever look at its face you know yeah. you don't have to cut its neck and see its last 
blood drip out of it. You don't have to really recognize what it is you're doing right. when you're eating a chicken. Right. You're just letting the supermarket, supermarket hitman take care of all the dirty work for you. Well, it's almost like we've got this hamster that's in a cage in our house, which is really, to me, the saddest thing in the world because he's alone. <laughs> And nobody holds him. My daughter uh, picks him up like once a week for about 20 minutes, tops. Wow. And the rest of the time he gnaws on the bars to oh, get out. God. And I just think like this is the most pathetic existential existence this thing lives in. And I hate that we have him as a pet. Um, and then we had a mouse that was loose and we set a trap. And I was like, this mouse and that hamster are a fucking <laughs> chromosome apart. And one of them we hold and pat and give little baths in a little fucking butter dish. Yeah. And the other one I'm trying to snap his neck with a spring. Well, how about squirrels, man? I mean, squirrels have this free ride in the rodent community. Mm. Nobody hates squirrels. Yeah. Everybody hates rats. But squirrels, all they had to do was get cute. All they had to do, listen... Just stay an herbivore. Don't go eat any animal protein, and grow something pretty. Grow a big fluffy tail that looks cute. Do a little, do a little tail show. They do a little tail show. Yeah. They, they chew in their little nuts, and everybody thinks they're cute. Mm -hmm. Little kids walk up to these wild rodents, and they'll give them nuts. Could you imagine That's if true. you saw your little kid walking up to a fucking rat? How much you'd be terrified. <laughs> but they're, yeah. they're like we we're, we're so confident in their behavior that we'll just walk up to them, give them peanuts and oh, shit. I used, to love, I used to love squirrels. We had them where I grew up. We, I used to feed them all the time, give them little peanuts. There's a park in North Hollywood that you could go to, and um, these squirrels, apparently people have been feeding them forever. So they come up to you when they see you. They're like, you? You got something for me? You got something for me? And I watched this one dude, this old Chinese guy. He, he laid down on a blanket. He had a bag of peanuts, and he would just slowly like reach his hand out, and the squirrels would come over and just take it from him. They were so confident. Yeah. Just great. I mean, he's holding the peanut. They're just taking it from him. And they just step back just a little bit and they would eat it. They didn't worry about it's him true. at all. It's true. They're just a rodent that got cute. That's it. I mean, cute it's, it's like going back to the wolf. Like the, 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 the dogs that we have today are just the wolves that were able to be around man. They were able to chill the fuck out, grab some scraps. Man liked him because he was protection. Yeah. Wolf liked the man because he was giving him food. And it, but, it, but it weeded out the vicious ones until they got smaller and cuter, and we crafted them to be the little lap dogs that we wanted. The crazy thing is how short of a time it takes to do that, to change these animals. Like, we don't know how long it took before wolves became dogs, but they did this experiment. They did a, I was listening to this podcast on Radio Lab. I forget the name of it, but it was about wolves. And they did this experiment on, oh, it was about dogs, dogs and their wild nature, whatever the fuck it was. But they did this experiment um, with um, foxes, where this guy was raising foxes. And whenever he would go um, towards like the cage where the fox, fox were, if the foxes were um, scared of him, if they like feared him, if there was any like aggression towards him, he'd kill those foxes. So the only foxes that he let stay alive were the foxes that were actually like happy to see yeah. people. And then over time, they did this over a period of like 10 years, they literally changed the way the foxes looked. Yeah. They changed the way their face looked. Their face became smaller. Their bones became more petite. They became different colors. Their ch their, their colors changed. Their, their overall, even the males, their bodies became much more feminine. And they became domesticated, like in 10 years, to the point where you would go near the fox cage and they would wag their tail and like whimper to be near you. Like they wanted to be near people. Yeah. And they were in a f fucking fur factory.
essentially. Wow. I mean, they're killing these things. Yeah. And this guy f- d- recorded all this stuff and, and did these, these studies over the period of like 10 years, changed the foxes that he had, mm. changed them. Sounds like and a George Orwell book. Was there something about the reaction to adrenaline that some of these animals didn't have the same reaction to adrenaline, the, the same uh, response to seeing strangers, and that those by favoring those, you sort of domesticated this animal like very quickly. And the idea behind it was they were trying to make an analogy towards people. Like that we're kind of doing that with society. If you look at the way people used to be, like there was some study recently about um, hunter-gatherers and the difference between their bones and our bones, that their bones were much more dense. And because these, you know, these people were working from the time they were babies. I mean, they, they just never stopped like picking things up and climbing hills and like they were constantly at work but we're becoming like more and more fragile yeah. as we sit at desks all day and sit in our car to get to our desk and sit on the couch to watch the tv after you're done and then read a book in bed i mean fucking we're falling apart we're like yeah. mush yeah and that you know when you really think about that like that's kind of very similar to what is happening with those foxes it's just a matter of preferring one type of behavior not breeding with the other ones and there i think their premise was about like the best way to eliminate like war and eliminate all these different negative aspects of our culture would be for and people have said this for people like that to just people to stop fucking them stop fucking the savages stop fucking all the people that want to go to war yeah like if as as a as a rule like all across the world if women just stop fucking all men who want to go to war. Well, if you think about it, and stay with me on this because it's a little dark, but if the people that are natural soldiers, they are going to war, and they are dying without breeding as much as the guys that, that are afraid to go to war. Right. So in a sense, there is some natural selection. If that is a gene, if there is a gene that makes you more you know, uh, likely to want to wanna go to battle, um, that kind of makes sense. Honking? Someone's car alarm. Oh. Isn't that hilarious? Like back in the day, car alarms were like something that anybody took seriously. Like, oh my God. Yeah. There's a car alarm going up. I bet this is a crime. Now it's like asshole. Yeah. Is that in the back or in the front? Front? Yeah. You go take a look at it if you want. Just make sure it's not one of ours. One of ours? Yeah. I mean, what if somebody hit your car? And that's why the alarm's going yeah. off. Yeah. That is possible. It's in the back. Oh, then don't worry about it. Fucking these people with their guns. Remember fucking... those ones that would do like different. Yeah. I remember in, uh, when I lived in Little Italy, this fucking Cadillac got tapped and it played the theme from The Godfather. <laughs> That's hilarious. Remember, everybody used to have that one alarm, that one type of alarm. You would hear that, you'd be like, fuck. Uh, somebody, it was always somebody bumping into it while they were parking. And they used to go, they used to go for way longer. Now, usually people are near their car. They, it's almost always somebody set it off by accident, uh-huh. which means it usually stops pretty quickly. Yeah. But back then, it would go on for 10, 15 minutes. Yeah. And you'd be going out of your fucking mind. You're sitting there trying to write on your computer or whatever. Mm-hmm. Death. 
Yeah, those things are fucking distracting as shit. When they came along with noise-reducing headphones, that is that was a beautiful thing, yeah. man. To be able to sit and have... If you had, like, noise-reducing headphones on right now, you could totally filter that out. Yeah. Like most of it. Well, the mics probably didn't pick up on that. Do you think they did? Yeah, if somebody's, like, got headphones on, yeah. I bet they could hear it. That was pretty fucking loud. But those Bose ones, I mean, I've got a pair. I've had the same pair. Put it this way. I've had them long enough that I got replacement, you know, the rubber the padding thing in the middle. Yeah. I was in a Bose store, and I was like, oh, fuck, you can buy replacements? Because I, I had stopped using them because they just wore out. And I popped in some new ones. I've, I swear to God, 10 years I've had these things. Wow. They still, I don't think they make a better version. It's like one of those products, you know, they make a they make a year of it. Like the Honda Civic in like 1982 was like a perfect <laughs> fucking car. Yeah. There's a bunch of cars from that era that are like, to this day, like they're becoming like really valuable. Like, like Volvo DLs. Land Cruisers. Yeah. They're t those old Toyota Land Cruisers. Yeah. People are taking those Land Cruisers, the the old ones that look like Jeeps, and even the newer ones like after that, and they're fixing them up and selling them for over a hundred thousand dollars. What? Yeah. No shit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a company called Icon, and uh, they they make incredible cars, man. I mean, it's like you're talking about very very expensive shit, and I agree. I mean, it's not necessarily something that I would buy because it is a, a lot of fucking money. And uh, but they take these like Broncos and they take an old Bronco, they take the shell and they completely redo it with the highest end components, like the best suspension possible, a completely modern engine, you know, with like 400 horsepower. They take a Coyote engine from the uh, 5.0 Mustang. So it's a Mustang GT engine, like this crate engine. It's a beautiful engine. They huh. stick it in an old Bronco. Those really cool old I ones. I love those bodies. You got to see. Pull, pull I up. I like the convertible ones. Icon Bronco. Pull up the silver one because there's a fucking silver one. If it so doesn't people make are spending hard, all this money for the body. Alive. Well, it's not just the body. It's the engineering. Like this yeah. guy, um, I forget his name. I think Jonathan Ward, I think his name is. The guy who is the, uh, the lead... Uh, CEO, whatever the fuck he is, president of this company, just leave that thing on there for a second so I can stare at it. Good Lord, that's beautiful. Look at that fucking truck. Look how long that hood is. God damn, that's a fucking work of art, man. It's like something you played with as a kid and dreamed of driving. Yeah, like when you think about a regular truck, like regular trucks are cool, you know, hey, you know, you got kids, you want to pile them into an Escalade, that's cool. But if you see that thing driving down the street, I mean, that's like some Mad Max apocalypto wonder ride it's a cool west side car too because it looks like you could take it on the beach you could take that on the beach you could take that wherever the fuck you want to go well that's what i think about is when the shit hits the fan and it's going to in la obviously there's going to be some type of a terrorist strike or there's going to be a poisoning what? Of the oh, water. Hey, easy 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 greg Fitzsimmons. i want to have I, i've a prius and my wife has a toyota highlander so if i want to get out i know the way out because if i if i live in venice I'm the last one in line for the 10, for the 405, for the Pacific Coast Highway. We're we're the last ones to leave L.A. Like, mm. lock up on our way out. Everyone's in front of us. Right. So I think, well, you got two options. One of them is to jump on a boat. Like, you got to be able to jerry-rig a something simple little fucking motorboat, go off to Catalina Island, wait it out. Mm. The other option is, like, because when I was a teenager, we used to ride motorcycles on the power lines because what? Where, wherever there's power lines, they have to have a, a path cleared underneath it so they can service the power lines. So if you drive dirt bikes, you always know if there's power lines, there's a good trail underneath it. Wow. So if you want to get out of L.A., you, you get on one of those power lines, but you need a truck like that. You need something with, like, a yeah. lot of clearance, big fat wheels. 
dude, do you want to live if the apocalypse hits? Like, okay, let's, there's stages the apocalypse. There's okay. a power goes out apocalypse. That's going to suck. Yeah. Especially if it's in July. People are going to be hot as fuck. No one's going to know what to do. People are going to be camping out in the beach because they can't take living in the valley in the, in the middle of the summer. There's going to be some shortages of food for sure. There's going to be some looting for sure. You can't pump gas because they're all electric pumps. It's going to be a real problem until they figure out how to get the power back on. And, you know, there's been situations in other parts of the world where power in a modern city has been off for weeks. Like Toronto apparently had some crazy ice storm in the 90s. And, you know, it was like fucking zero be below, you know, Damn. 10 below zero, something like that. Horrible, horrible weather. You know, Celsius, whatever they do up there. And these people had no power for like two fucking weeks. And in Toronto, wow. in the middle of the winter... So that, it could happen in L.A., man. If it happened in L.A. in the summer, it could get ugly quick. So that would be one. That's like one kind of apocalypse. Okay, I can handle that. That's not that bad. But the real bad one is like super volcano, earthquake, asteroidal impact. Those are the big ones. Tsunami. Tsunami. Yeah. I mean, I'm right in a tsunami, tsunami zone. You probably are. Well, I am you know, they, because the way the bay is shaped, you know, you've got... You know, from the Palisades down to whatever, Manhattan Beach is all one half circle, basically. And Venice is in the center of that half circle. So as the water is rushing in from a tsunami, it's all getting channeled into one opening, which is Venice Beach. Oh, my God. And that shit's going to come straight down Venice Boulevard, take everything out. The canals. Canals will be underwater. That's right. It's canals. Right. I mean, they have canals right through the city. Yeah. Get out now. Get out now. Actually, we we moved up the hill. We oh. moved from Venice to Mar Vista, which is about uh, a mile, but it's straight uphill. The people that live on the beach, like right on the water, are bold as fuck. Bold as fuck. You have to have some either some mad loot, whether it's like house number five, some yeah. you know CEO of Q-tips or some shit. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you and his house is shaped like a Q-tip, <laughs> and the servants replace with real cotton every day. <laughs> Oh. That would be it. Q-tips, man, because people are not going to stop using Q-tips. No. And there's no, like, nobody wants the generic ones because the generic ones are like, they get flat. Mm -hmm. Q-tips stay fluffy as shit. Yeah. Who's the asshole that makes those Q-tip, fake Q-tips with plastic oh, stems? Yeah. yeah. You cut the inside of your ear because you're yeah. digging around the fucking cotton falls right off. Yeah. <laughs> Cheap now you, got a, now you got a cocktail straw in your ear. Now, yeah. the, the real Q-tips is like one of those, again, going back to like the 82 Civic or uh, it's just they made perfect products. And sometimes you just you nail it. You got it. Walk away. Walk away. Walk away. You yeah. know, certain cameras like uh, I don't know what kind of camera you got, but I had the, uh, the those old Canons, the original like first generation Canon video cameras. They were high eight. They were beautiful pieces of machinery that I have one that I still use to this day. Wow. Yeah. I mean, if you got really good shit it does the purpose and does it at a really high level you you essentially could just maintain it forever that's what they've been really doing in cuba with cars you know if you go to cuba you look at their cars apparently a large percentage of them are american automobiles from like the 50s oh, and yeah. 60s big ass cars crazy yeah. and beautiful and in really good shape oh yeah and i think that's what that guy's doing with those icons he's just taking these old cars and just putting the best components on it and building you know, like uh, uh, what it could have been. You know, best oh, yeah. Case Guys scenario. from Europe come over here and they buy muscle cars and they just ship them right over to Germany. Uh, double it. They're worth a lot of money in other countries, I'm yeah. sure. Yeah. There's a flavor those things have, too. Those American muscle cars that, like, 
the best engineered cars, in my opinion, are like the Japanese and the German and some of the Italians. They have some amazing engineered cars. But like the coolest cars, there's no question. Like just straight cool, 69 Mustang rolls up. That's it. Man, just shut the fuck up. That's Everybody it. shut the fuck yeah. up. You have a Ferrari and a Lamborghini. Your doors open up like wings. Stop. <laughs> just stop. <laughs> if somebody pulls up in one of those Eleanor Mustangs, one of those 67 GT500s, just good Lord, yeah. what a beautiful car that yeah, is. Yeah, so simple. Oh, they just nailed it. Yeah. Like those Corvettes, like you ever see those Corvettes from like like 1968, 69, that Stingray car? Yeah, the Stingray. You know, that beautiful fucking, and the wide tires and the wide back end, that rumble of that engine. Like It it looked like a lion about to pounce with big back haunches and just... They just nailed it. I don't know what drugs they were doing when they were designing cars in the 60s, but they just fucking nailed it. Right. They nailed it over and over and over again. Barracudas. I mean, everybody was just creating. Yeah, they were creating these fucking masterpieces. Yeah, yeah. They're getting back to that now for sure. Like the cars look better today than they did for a long time. But I would really like to know what the fuck happened. What, what, What happened in like the 1980s where things went so bad? Yeah. Like, I know there's peaks and valleys and a lot of things, but in American automobile design, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, and at the exact same time as when the Japanese cars started coming out, just when we needed to be at our best mm-hmm. to compete, we suddenly just, I don't know, what it, the, you know, the factories where they... I don't know. I, I bet there's probably two versions of the story. There's the pro-union version and mm-hmm. the con-union version. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure there's a lot of people that blame the unions. I mean, it's tough because... I was just talking to somebody who's very pro-union yesterday, and I, I'm very pro-union, but I'm starting to slip a little bit uh, in some ways. Like, I'm, I'm in the Writers Guild, and I'm very, you know, I walk the walk. I walked away from a deal so I could walk the picket line, and my dad was in the radio union after for, for his whole career. That's what left my, left my mom a pension, and, and, I, and I believe that there should be a living wage for people, but I also think, God, how do we fix these fucking corrupt, broken engines? Like what corrupt, broken engines, union-wise? You mean like things like well, construction, certain you know uh, teamsters. Yeah, if that you want to build shit. something, it's really gotten to the point where you're just getting squoze from every direction, mm-hmm. and it's adding, it's adding. You know, I'd, I'd rather see another guy get a job than see the union just absorb that much more money. Well, any times you have you have bureaucracy, bureaucracy. Any time you have a large number of people that are involved in something that really only needs a couple people. You know, I mean, how many people really need to be involved in going over your construction plans or yeah. how many people really need? I mean, once you in, establish environmental parameters, and shit like that, things like people trying to fix their house up or something like that, like how many people really need to be involved in this? Like, are you hiring a contractor? Does the contractor know what he's doing? Yes. Okay. Well, we're good. Yeah. Like, let me just get the fuck out of your hair. Yeah. Like, what do you, unless you're doing something dangerous, we're just going to assume that everyone's doing something dangerous. No, there's a lot of people getting paid off, too. I have a friend who is trying to get a house built, and uh, they're dealing with this uh, commission in this area, this particular area. They're trying to develop a house, and they've, they've like, literally been told, like, you have to, like, grease wheels. You have to, like, to get things moving, to get things approved. You have to, like, get on people's good side. Like, they're saying things to these people, like, to indicate that, like, hey, you might want to buy these people something. You might want to yeah. bribe them. You might want to be friends with them. The closer you can get to these people, the easier they'll lube this process. I'm like, look, this is so bizarre. Yeah. This is like they have power over you. This is not like 
there's real clear parameters. This is how we operate, regardless of whether or not we like you or don't like you. No, there's like this, like this little wiggle room going on. I mean, that's essentially what corruption really is, right? It's wiggle room. It's yeah, like, it's you, never. You, nobody ever states it as corruption. Nobody right. ever says black and white. I'm bribing this guy. It's just I happen to take this guy out to dinner. Well, it starts there. Yeah. Well, well, was that the difference between him going with you and going with somebody else? Very likely. Well, then that's a bribe. That's true, right? In in a lot of ways. I mean, you should be able to hire whoever the fuck you want if it's your money and your job. But when you're talking about something like you know, a, a union that's involved in construction or a union that's involved in, you know, coastal commissions, those type of th things, you know, where people are deciding whether or not, like, the groups of people that decide whether or not this happens to you or that doesn't happen to you. Yeah. Things get real weird, man. They well, get Japan is ridiculous. Apparently, like, you know, uh, they tried to build a high-speed railroad, or they did build a high-speed railroad. And the, the uh, not the unions, but the, you know, the different... Um, levels of bureaucracy within the government and privately were squeezing everybody to the point where the project was 10 times as much as it should have been and then the train started crashing because they were Ooh. trying to save so much money oh, they're putting inferior parts in yeah that's where the argument for unions come in right because it's not a um, it's not a black and white issue like I definitely think look we're talking about Foxconn and all those people that are being forced to work for such a horrible wage they're jumping off roofs you gotta, you gotta establish like a living wage. You gotta establish like if people are working for you, and this is a valuable thing they're doing for you. Like you have to pay them enough so they could feed themselves and clothe themselves. Like you can't. So like in in and in you know, healthcare and all the different things that are gonna come up. I mean, you're a, a piece of their organization, and they're they're demanding to be recognized as a valuable piece of the organization. Like, you can't have all the money. Like, that's what it is. Like, you have people working for you. You need to pay them. That makes sense. But it's like whenever you get a group that is exploiting these, uh, these laws that are in place to protect people, like, that's when shit gets weird. Like, my buddy was in the um, automotive industry in Detroit. He was in the auto workers union. And he was telling me like how crazy some of the contracts were and some of the gigs were. They had this thing where you would both work. You would have a two-man contract, like meaning that this was a this not a two-man contract, a two-man job. Like this job to run this machine, it really only took one guy. Yeah. But they would the union would require two men, so you guys get two guys get jobs. So you you're both you would do four hours a day. Yeah. Like you would do four hours in the morning, and uh, I would come in at noon, and I would take over, and uh, I would do the job for the next four hours, and then you go to the gym, you go fucking have lunch. You literally would work four hours a day. Yeah. And that's what they all did, and they all were making like 150 grand a year. Right. I mean, it was crazy money. He was talking about how much money these different workers were making. He's yeah. like, you know, if you got to a certain level. Like, you got benefits, you got this. You got, it was, like, super expensive to keep all those people employed at that level. Not only that, but to, for that money that you're paying them, you're also paying 13% uh, into the union, which pays for the benefits. So yeah. that, you know, if what what's $50 an hour to that worker actually costs the employer, you know, what's 12% of $50? six $6, $7? Something along those lines. Does it matter? No, Did I need to break down that? Uh, no. Math? No, I don't think I so. I think your listeners get it. Yeah. I think unions, if, if used correctly, are a, a nice sort of insurance to people getting paid a fair wage and getting treated ethically and having you know money distributed in, in an ethical and, and fair way. 
there, you know, problem with anything is things don't always go the way they should. Best case yeah. scenario. Yeah, it's almost like you got to start over again with the unions. You got to get to like the teachers' union is insane. You got women in there. There was a woman that uh, women. There's male teachers. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> no, I was thinking about this one woman, though, that works you. at my kid's school. And she had liquor on her breath, and she was, like, Whoa. you know, just ignoring the class and reading the paper. And, like, they couldn't get rid of her. They she just liquor on her breath. Yeah, it was just impossible to get rid of her. There's so much you have to go through. Well, tenure's a weird thing, man. And I had this professor You get it on. after three years as a teacher. That's it? Three years. Welcome to the jungle, though. you got to survive. Three years yeah, in right. Vietnam. Yeah, yeah. Especially in L.A. You deserve it. Whoo. You get through three years of working in L.A., babysitting kids. You're gray-haired. The women are bald. <sighs> You're just beaten down. You yeah. got ulcers and shit. Yeah. Fucking, <laughs> how many kids brought a gun to class today? It's a weird world, man. It's a weird world. There's so many haves and have-nots in this world. There doesn't seem to be any solution or anybody reaching for it. But that might be the one thing that's ever going to level anything out when it comes to... Unions? Yeah. I mean, having, having groups of people that uh, are all behaving in an ethical way. Having them in a, in a large number, like whether it's a, you know, a big group like the Actors Union or whether it's a Carpenters Union, or it's just it's fucking really hard. It's really hard to get people all together in a group like that to act ethically, hmm. to just like always be cool. To just always to agree. Them. I mean, unions just split apart. There was the Writers Guild East and the Writers Guild West, yeah. which effectively, you know, destroyed the power of either one. There was AFTRA and SAG, which are both actors' unions. Which should, they're finally combined now, but it should have been. It should right now. It should be the DGA, which is the Directors Guild, the Writers Guild, and the Actors Union should all be under the same. To and IATSE, which is like the technical guys, should all be one union because what they do is. The studios will line it up so that they uh, the contract for the Actors Union comes up in January every two years. But then they set up the Writers Guild to renew in February every two years. Uh, but they make them off years. So that way you've never got everybody uh, lining up against you on a union contract at the same time. The, and uh, they, can, they can weaken everybody. The, uh what kind of disagreements do they have? Like when you have disagreements in like the actors' union or something like uh, that. Mostly it's digital downloads, which is a battle that everybody lost. You know that that should have been. I mean, I just got a residual check on a TV show that I did, and I got first I got the check for the reruns on TV, the cable reruns. Then I got the one for digital online, and uh, the one on cable was like I don't know seventeen hundred bucks, and the same usage period on digital was like thirteen dollars, and it's like. Probably more views digitally than it was on cable, mm. but we gave that away during the last strike. Ooh, yeah. They weren't looking down the road. They were really fighting for network and cable reusage, and they weren't looking at. They missed it. Yeah, Netflix, all this shit that's taken off. We're barely getting a taste of it. That's crazy. Yeah, they missed that. That's a big one to it's miss. It's the whole future. Wow, that is so nuts. Yeah. What? But there's benefits, right, to having a union. Like, what? What oh, do you? Fuck yeah. What? What do you think are like the primary benefits of? Well, the I've union had my my health coverage because I've been in the Writers Guild for like 13 years straight. So I've had my health insurance paid for. It's amazing coverage, low deductible, uh, low premiums. It's like I think I pay like 250 bucks a quarter or something crazy. That's amazing. And I'm paying thir 13 grand. Um, I pay. I was I was in the union for 12 years out for one year and I'm now I'm back in again and that one year that I had off I paid $13,000 for my family so that's you know that's a lot of money right there right. and then you get the residuals that come in which is big and um, 
you don't get abused. You know, you have certain like you get meals, you get um, they can't they can only work you a certain number of hours. I mean, there's not too many people that dig in on that, but the spirit of it is there. You know, mm-hmm. the producers know that they if you're in the union that they're not going to. I've worked on both sides of it. I've worked non-union jobs and as as a producer, not a writer, because uh, I can't. But I've seen the hours that you work and how you writers guild jobs. You get you can take an hour for lunch. Yeah. And you also get treated in like a pretty commensurate way. Like, right. You know, like the, the, when you're in a, a SAG TV show or something like that, it's like it's pretty across the board. Everybody's professional. Like as far as like, you know, you got a craft service table, you know, you're, this is where your dressing room is. You know, you're out by X amount of times. You have a 12 hour turnover. Like they have all these rules. Yeah. They have to follow by those rules. When they go over, like they get all bummed out. Like everybody gets bummed out. Yeah. Like it's super expensive when they yeah. start going overtime. And money, money talks. Yeah. That makes them get. There's no way, like most shows, shouldn't take more than eight hours to shoot, you know. And instead, it takes fifteen. Why do you think that is? Because everybody wants to brand whatever it is that they're putting into the project. You know, if you're the hairstylist, you want the hair to look perfect. If you're, you know, the the set guy, you want you you need an extra twenty minutes to do this. As opposed to if there's penalties, it's like, no, we got to fucking go, get it done. And then we're going to move on. So I think with cable, there's usually not a strong hand on the on the uh, on the wheel as much as there is in, in network shows where there's somebody that's a showrunner that really has to answer the studio and say, no, we are done at 6 p.m. That's it. You know, maybe they go an hour long. But I work on cable shows where I worked on one and it was uh, T.I.'s wife, Tiny, and her ghetto fabulous friends. Wow. What'd you do on that? It was a panel show. I was uh, what was I on that? I was the head. I was the showrunner on that. <laughs> and uh, they came in, and we were supposed to start taping at four o'clock. Started at seven p.m. because they all were getting their hair done, and it was a cat fight. The next night we were taping again. Supposed to be a four o'clock taping. Seven thirty. Wow. You know how much fucking money that is? That's a lot of money. You're paying everybody all their union wages for three nothing. and a half hours, right? And then you're going long, which means now you're going into overtime wages on the other side. So, there's many good things about having a union. There's many good things about those. Oh kind yeah. Of unions. There's yeah. some unions that are fucked, man. There's uh, there's a big dispute right now with the UFC and the Culinary Union. And the Culinary Union is uh, they attack the UFC and make all these like websites and posts and they have like stories that they uh they have people write about how horrible the ufc is because they want the ufc to give up uh station casinos owns uh the ufc the ufc is owned by zufa they own station casinos they own the ufc and they own uh 22 casinos and if those wow. casinos went union they're not union they're non-union and i guess I'm, i might be speaking out of school here i don't really know i believe check this, that the workers don't want it to be union. Like, they voted against it because they didn't want to pay the wages. But if they did pay the wages, they're ha- I guess they're happy with what they make. They don't want to pay the dues. The dues. But if they did do it, the culinary union would make some insane amount of money every year, millions of dollars every year. Yeah. So what they do is they have this, like, smear campaign, like, constant smear campaign about the UFC. And they, they hired politicians, and one of them actually just got busted. This is one of the main guys in new york that they had uh, supposedly that had been a roadblock to getting the ufc legalized in new york ufc is not legal in new york still and, no still to this day it's illegal in new york state the reason being because of corrupt politicians and all goes back to the culinary union trying to keep the ufc 
uh, like trying to turn the station casinos into um, union casinos. Right. So they're spending all this money and like getting people upset about the UFC and making all these nutty websites. And anytime anybody says anything fucked up, anytime anything goes wrong, the coloring union was jumps all over it. And they're just trying to muscle the UFC into relinquishing control of these casinos. It's hilarious. That's allegedly the story. Obviously, I don't know all the details. So I should probably say for legal purposes, this is how it's been told to me. Yeah. But ultimately, you know that if there's a lot of money to be made, and you've got some organization that relies on keeping strong numbers of members. They're going to be, you know, financially motivated to try to make Smear some things happen. Smear campaigns are cheap. I had a buddy who was in the Teamsters. Like uh, when I was a kid, when I was like 21, 22 years old, he was, uh, and he, he would uh, work the docks. He would fillet fish all day. And he had a dent in his hip. And the dent in his hip was from his hip pressing up against the fish fillet table all day. Like he had a dent. Really? Like one hip was like dented in. He was like, yeah, touch it right here. It's dented. Because he just leaned all day. he leaned all day. And he always smelled like fish. <laughs> always smelled like fish. This poor bastard. <laughs> was, I don't mean to laugh. I mean, the guy's making a living, but what a life. Yeah. Holy shit. He was, uh, he was my boxing coach. And so he would, uh, when he would rub this uh, like Vaseline stuff on your face, this stuff called Abilene, to, so that like punches, when they, they hit you, they slide. They don't cut you. Yeah. Like the leather doesn't cut you. So he'd rub this stuff all over your face. You'd just smell fish. Ugh. Fish and Abilene. And he'd just be rubbing it in his so he, skin. So he was filleting fish and training as a boxer. Yeah. He's one of the craziest guys I've ever met. He, uh, he got his finger bitten off in a street fight, and they replaced it with his toe, and they curved it permanently so he could still throw right hooks. Crazy Irishman. Joe Lake. Which toe? The big Love toe? Love that guy. Uh, they took the second toe, not the big toe, but the one next to it. Yeah, I guess like, you, don't use, you don't use that. I guess you don't need it. You just strengthen up those last three babies. Yeah. Keep that party rolling with no toe. <laughs> No, I mean, the thing is, if you think about a finger, each one individually is doing things, but your toes are just, you don't even really need them. We, we could get rid of toes at this point. No, they do help you. They help you with movement, with movement and, you know, like they're, they're adjustable. Yeah, I guess like you got to balance yourself. Yeah, like you need toes. Like it fucks with people when they lose a toe. They lose a lot of uh, their ability to move around. Yeah. It's not the same. I used to caddy for this guy that uh, something happened to him in Vietnam and... Uh, his feet were paralyzed, so like his ankles worked, but like his from the ankle down, everything was just fucking dead. Whoa! And this guy walked. He he walked like he'd have to almost bring his knee up in in the front every time he'd step forward. Like ski boots. Yeah, almost like that. And then he would uh, he'd hit the ball, and it just he never could hit it straight because you wow. need you know you need balance. But the guy fucking loved golf. He'd play like two rounds a day. <laughs> You have to caddy for him. You'd be all over the course looking for this guy's fucking ball. Fucking numb feet. <laughs> That's so weird. What a weird ailment. Dead feet. Only I guess he's probably happy that was it. Yeah. You know? Right. Out of all the shit that could go wrong. I know. I know, I know a dude who broke his toe really bad and they told him he couldn't do jujitsu for six months. Uh if they were gonna fix the toe or they could amputate it. So he said cut it off. No shit. Yeah. Which toe? Uh, I think it was like the same one. The Why one am I so fascinated by toe. which toes are in each story? I think it was the one next to the big toe. Yeah. I might be wrong. Wow. One of his toes. If you had to lose one toe, which one would it be? Uh, that little... Hmm. That's a good question. I was going to say that freeloader toe right next to the little toe. All right. That fucking toe Your is Your ring useless. finger. Yeah. That toe doesn't... 
does nothing. I never pay attention to that toe. No. Look, washed that toe a million times in my life. Never looked at it twice. <laughs> Do you go I look me- at my pinky toe. I check it out because it's weird. Yeah. I look at that tiny little nail. I go look at this stupid nail. You know, I'll look. <laughs> Looks like a clipping of another nail. Yeah. It's not even its own nail. Put that little toe next to the pinky toe. Poop no love. Gets no love. Do you get in there and individually wash your toes? <laughs> I used to, and now I, now I don't. You give up. You got no no I desire. <laughs> slap it on the top, slap it on the bottom, done. I wash my feet, yeah. In between? My, I'm, I'm always doing stuff barefoot. You yeah. Know, like I lift weights barefoot. I do kickboxing barefoot, jujitsu barefoot. It's all barefoot. You got to get in there. You also got to make sure you don't get athlete's foot. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, this, you know, athlete's foot is what you, when you get that, those cracks underneath your toes, like at the base where the, the, the ball of your foot reaches the, the bottom of your toe, mm. like that gets all dry and fucked up and cracks and it hurts. And a lot of that comes from your toes being dirty. Mm. You know, it comes from like weird fungus getting in there. And apparently this is the same, like the same as ringworm. Like athlete's foot is kind of the same fungus as ringworm. It's just in a different spot on your body. Mm. And jock itch, all same shit. Like yeah, that's right. Jock itch is jock the same itch. as athlete's foot. Yeah, you get some fucking funk growing on your dick, boy. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, oh God, I would, I would Fungus. hate that. It's important if you, anybody's listening to this though. If you do have some funk on you, um, whatever you do, don't use antibacterial soap. Don't, don't ever use that stuff. If you use antibacterial soap, soap, I mean, unless you're a hospital, you know, worker, you're a, you know, a doctor or something, then you should use it. But there's stuff called um, defense soap that is uh, a probiotic. It's, uh, it, it discourages the growth of bad bacteria, but it promotes healthy bacteria. It's all like natural oils. They use like um, eucalyptus oil and tea tree oil and it, it just like staff and ringworm and all that stuff. It's really good for grapplers. That's why it's called defense soap. They made it for grapplers. But for anybody, like for keeping like healthy skin flora, that and here's a big one, dude. This is really big probiotics fucking i drink this shit all the time oh yeah you told me about that so important yeah man. You, these are organisms like live organisms you take them into your body and it literally strengthens your immune system like acidophilus i was reading this thing where they were saying that acidophilus they believe can discourage when you touch things like say if you touch something and it's got some sort of a funk on it and then you accidentally touch your face well, if you're taking healthy doses of acidophilus, apparently acidophilus will resist the introduction of new bacteria. They're like, whoa, whoa, bitch, what are you doing here? What the fuck are you doing here? Whereas if you have that antibacterial soap, your skin is like devoid of even healthy bacteria. Yeah. The healthy flora is just as important. Like you can't like strip it off. It's just as important to keep the healthy flora as it is to get rid of the bad shit. Yeah, the, um, somebody... Somebody told me, I was reading an article about bacteria, and it's like, there's a pretty big percentage of your body that's made up of bacteria. Yeah, it's huge. Like, the amount of weight in your body is like 12 pounds or something of bacteria. This is the way, I saw it explained once, that really rang a bell. I'm making that number up, but it's a lot. This is the way, I saw a scientist explain this, so I'm pretty sure he's correct. He said there's more E. coli in your gut than have ever been people ever. Wow. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. We, and it's just sitting there? Well, it's doing, it's working. Like healthy stomach bacteria is like very important for digestion. That's what you're getting when you're absorbing like these uh, kombuchas and shit like that. You're changing your, your gut bacteria. And uh, there's a lot of studies that are trying to link that to autism. 
and they think that autism and poor uh, gut bacteria, in, intestinal tract bacteria, it might be an issue. The inflammation factor, that inflammation might cause all sorts of distress throughout the entire body, like as a, you know, the, the symbiosis of your stomach, your digestive tract, your circulatory system, and your brain, all of them together, being affected equally, that this digestive disorder might also fuck with people's heads. Yeah. Yeah, I got my guts fucked, man. I fart, soft shits, pain. <laughs> my gut is wrong. Well, how's your diet? Diet's great. Really? Fantastic. So what the fuck? I think I got Giardi when I was in Florida like <sighs> 20 years ago, and I never really got rid of it. Ever since I got it, I've had gas. Giardia, you get that from drinking water that yeah, animals down, shit in. Right, down in Florida. They don't have fresh water very much in Florida. So what were you doing? How'd you get it? Just staying in a hotel, me me and my wife, she got rid of it. I never did. You got it from a hotel? Yeah. What? Yeah. How the fuck did you get it? Because they don't have a lot of groundwater in Florida. They fucking pump all that shit in from out of town. So, like, the tap water gave you Giardia? Tap water gave us Giardia. Jesus yeah. fucking Christ. And I went on, like, three different cycles of, I forget it was tetracycline or something, to the point where the doctor was like, you can't keep taking this, and it should just... It should equal out, and I've gone back, and it never has. Oh, my God, dude. That's insane. I haven't farted once since we've been in here, by the way. Thank you. I wouldn't do it. Thank you. I appreciate that. I would fart. Um, it, I did fart in an elevator recently, and the, <laughs> someone did the running like hand in, open the doors, <sighs> and they came in, and I just looked at them like, hey, it's an asshole move. Mine was an asshole move, but you don't <sighs> open up elevator doors on somebody. So let's take a ride. So, because he shoved his arm in the elevator door. No, I had just farted, and right. then I saw the hand come in. It's not, you don't like people shoving the hand through? I don't think you should do that ever. Unless it's like, if you're in a parking structure in Santa Monica that's six stories and there's like one elevator, so it comes every 12 minutes, you can stick your hand in that. But if I'm in like an, an office complex and there's like six banks of elevators or a hotel, you don't stick your hand in the door. Wow, but what if the guy's in a super hurry? He can wait for the next elevator. Wow. I'm in a super hurry, too. Always Greg am. Greg Fitzsimmons looking for excuses to fart on people. <laughs> take Stan. <laughs> is that what this is? Yeah. Or is this just an excuse to fart on people? Well, the other thing is if you put, I'll forget that I'm that it's valet parking somewhere. Like if I go to the comedy store, I always forget. Mm. And I'll fart before I get there. And I was like, oh, fuck. Sorry, Doc. <laughs> So this Jardia, like you saw, a noticeable change from the way your farts oh, yeah. were immediate. before the Jardia? Immediate. Damn. Fuck that. No, it's dude. way better than it was, but it's still there. I got to watch what I eat. Like, I'm lactose intolerant now. My friend Steve Ranello, he got Jardia, and then he got trichinosis. So is he, trichinosis he's got, from bad beef? He, his was from bad bear. Ooh. His is from eating a bear. But apparently, he keeps it for life. Like, they kill it in your stomach. Like it, it lives in your stomach and then it pro it goes like it migrates into your your muscle cells and it hurts like a fuck. Oh, like shit. you have like agony, like muscle agony, like you're in pain, like your back hurts, your shoulders hurt. They can't kill that. They just plant spores in you. So essentially, oh, that's the, brutal. It's crazy. The shit that's in your stomach, that's gone. But the stuff that's in your your arms and your legs and your your tissue stays there for the rest of your life. Those spores, to, like if you ate him. If you were in the if the apocalypse came around, you got to cook them to 160 degrees. 160. Hold on, let me write that down. 
160 bill. Oh, speaking of which, by the way, can I plug some dates? Fuck yeah. What do we got? Addison, Texas, coming to see you, folks. Oh, I love that February club. 28th through Improv? March 1st. Yeah, it's not a great, great room. Great fucking room. That's a Up great Up on the second floor, room. and uh, it's just a perfect shape. It's been around forever, too, so it's soaked with laughter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like the, the different sets that have been in that room. That's yeah. a great room. Addison, Texas. They still have the piano bar right next door? Oh, yeah. That's right. Well, hand job shack, too, right around the corner. How dare you? I didn't go. How dare you even know? No, I walked past it, and I saw this guy <laughs> who was loitering out front, and he just kept, like, walking back and forth, and I was like, why is this guy hanging out of front? And then I looked over, and, it's, and it was like a... Uh, somebody told me that you can tell it's a jack shack because if it has a neon footprint on it... Those are the jack That's shacks? like a sign that it's a happy ending place. Really? That's what uh, isn't, but, a certain comedian told me. I don't know if he's right, but isn't that like a reflexology thing? Like those That's what they can... want you to think. No shit. Yeah. So you go in, they rub your feet, and just jerk you off. I have no idea. Do they even touch your feet? If I had a choice, <laughs> if I was going to do it, I would say as long as I'm in here, you know, let's get the feet going first. Yeah. Some people like get weirded out about people touching their feet. We're really not into it at all. I like women's feet. I enjoy looking at women's We've feet. We've talked about this. <laughs> well, when they're attractive, you know. When they're attractive, it's great. What is it about that, though? I mean, if no, I'm not asking you personally, but what is it about, like, like why would a guy give a shit about a girl if a girl's toes took a hook turn and her feet are all... Bu like, what, do you, who, why, what does it even affect us? Like, why is it more desirable to see, like, perfect toes? Like, what Well, is I mean, it's just me. My personal thing is I believe it, it shows they're evil. <laughs> that they're haunted. <laughs> Hammer toe equals haunted. Haunted. Evil. She will fucking kill you one day with that toe. You'll be sleeping. All of a sudden, you'll feel this little hook going around your trachea, and you'll look up, and you'll see an ankle. Can you imagine if people were that transparent where the way their hands looked was like how deadly or nice they were? Yeah. So if people had beautiful, smooth, clean hands, you never had to worry about them. They're all knuckled up and fucked up. I think of Cinderella. Clear. Remember her sisters had those nasty fucking feet? Couldn't fit in the shoes? That's right. She was the original foot fetish worship goddess. She was. But maybe she was just a part of a narrative that's been going on forever. Like the Chinese people, they're binding. <laughs> the bindings, yeah. That's the craziest shit of all time. That's crazy. That's so frightening. But it's totally logical. If you go back, I mean, if you put it in context of going back, you could show wealth by saying, it wasn't just the aesthetic of small feet. It was also saying, my bitch doesn't have to work. Right. I can bind her feet. That's how much money I have. Good Lord. Yeah. Yeah, she could never work work in the fields. That's why Japanese people wear fucking hats and sunblock and gloves because in their culture, having fair skin is a sign of wealth. Wow. Right. Well, and, you know, in some cultures, they're trying to bleach people. Like Filipinos are really getting into um, glutathione mm. for some reason, which is, I think, it's like an amino acid or something like that. Some nutrition. I mean, I, I take it actually. It's like really good for your liver, but they. They're taking this stuff, and through some injection process that I don't totally understand, it makes your skin lighter. Mm. So they want to be, like, maybe they're darker brown Filipinos. They want to be light because lighter skin. Do you skin... think that's what Michael Jackson did? No. Michael Jackson had what I have. He had vitiligo. Oh. You know, like, if you look at my hands, like, if you see these spots in my hands. Right. I just, I'm just a white guy, so it doesn't look that freaky. But if I get a tan, it can look pretty freaky. Like, all my knuckles... 
like trauma areas are big areas that get it, like knuckles, because, you know, uh, anytime you get cuts, scratches, yeah. sometimes that can turn to vitiligo. I have to put like uh, an ointment on it to keep it from spreading. Yeah. But, um, plus you, you're hairy, so it just looks like patches of hair on your knuckles. Yeah. But Michael, I mean, but I'm a white guy. Again, it's not that much of a contrast between the area where I have pigment and the area where I don't have pigment. But if you're black, like Michael Jackson was when he was young, it's super traumatic for a lot of people. Yeah. Some people freak out. They have like some really good remedies for it now. They have ointment that can pretty much stop it from spreading. And they have these PUVA treatments that they do that repigment areas. They're pretty good at it now. But in the Michael Jackson days, they couldn't do shit. They, you know, I'm the opposite. I'm so on. fair that I try to, uh, I try to darken. Like on the weekends, I put uh, black shoe polish on my face <laughs> and I go sing. Do you leave like a white thing around your mouth <laughs> so you don't thing. fuck your food I'll, up? Right, I'll, I'll eat some powdered donuts before I go out. <laughs> Mommy. Um, also, I'm going to be at the Helium Comedy Club in oh, yeah. Philly. <laughs> Oh, forgot what we were doing. March 6th and 7th. Uh, don't forget, Denver Comedy Works, I think it's your favorite club in the country, March 12th through 14th. You just rattled off two of my favorite clubs in the right. country. Helium and Philly is right. fucking amazing. Amazing. And uh, the Comedy Works is where I did my last special, Rocky Mountain High. I did that in Comedy Works. So great. It's the best club ever. Yeah. It's the best club. It's just so perfect. I mean, there's a bunch of the best clubs ever. You know, yeah. there's like five or six of them all over the country. But yeah. that's, those are two of them. Two of the right top there. five right there. And then the Hollywood Improv, which is definitely up in that uh, rankings. Yeah, that's a great spot. March 21st. That's a fucking great spot. The Hollywood Improv is so, that's such a good fucking room for comedy and such a, like a high level room. You go there, you see Judd Apatow working yeah. out and, you know. Yeah. I mean, you're there all the time. There's so many good comics there. That's a that's a fucking showcase spot, man. And they run it tight. They keep it on time for the most part. People, mm -hmm. you know, they had uh, Arsenio Hall dropped in one night, and he did about 35 at the top of the show unannounced. Mm. And I spent uh, I don't know 16 of my 20 minutes shitting all over Arsenio Hall for How going long. And they they the crowd fucking went crazy. I think he tanked it. Oh, did he really? So nothing like starting the show off. With a tank Ooh. and going, you know, over your five, a drop by is five minutes. That's all they were giving him? Yeah. Well, that's not good. I don't know, 10 minutes. What, what was he supposed to, wasn't supposed to do any. Are, are you listening, Arsenio? Whoa. I can't Throwing believe Throwing it down. I know that dude. He's a good guy? He's a very nice guy. Yeah, I never met him. He's a very nice guy. He I, left before I started. I talked to him um, really recently about uh, social media stuff. When he was doing the new version of the Arsenio Hall show, yeah. they took over his social media, like his Facebook and his Twitter and all that shit. They asked to do that now. Like there was, a, I was doing this one thing. They asked me to do that. They they wanted to take over my Twitter. I go fuck you. Like what are you crazy? Well, we're gonna tweet for you. The fuck you're gonna tweet for me? Yeah. Like no, you're not. Like you want to start a Twitter page for the show. Well, you start that, and then you can tweet from that. You're not going to tweet from my personal Twitter page just because mm. I'm on a show. Like, the idea that you have to give it Some up. Some genius in the digital marketing department brought that up in a meeting, and they went, sounds like a good idea, Phil. Will you imagine so you have to be such a whore that you have to give up your Twitter page? Yeah. Like, get the fuck out of here. Like, no. Yeah. You can't. No, you can't have my Twitter page. If you want me to tweet stuff, send it to me, and I'll tweet it if I agree with it. Yeah. You can't take, but for him, they, they, he didn't even think about it. He just, he like didn't think that it was a big deal. Yeah. He was just like, yeah, yeah, cool. But now he's trying to get it back. Like he was struggling to get it back. 
under his own control after his show was canceled. No shit. Yeah, and I was like, this is ridiculous. Wow. Like they they like they own your social media presence, which yeah. is worth a fuckload of money. Yeah. Like, what if you did a project for you know name X production company, and in the project was they can tweet anything they want from your social media sites. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. They could tweet anything they want. Okay, they could put out anything they want. They would just release commercials all day. Yeah. I mean, imagine if that was in your contract and they just started putting out, like, there's a Tide commercial on your fucking Twitter feed. Tide got my clothes smelling fucking amazing. <laughs> Greg Fitzsimmons. And then there's a video and you're like, what? Yeah. I can't believe this. And then you call your agent, like, look, Greg, it's in the contract. You're like, oh my God. I'm retired. And they're like, I'm look, out. it's funny. It's about the Greg Fitzsimmons show. It's funny, but it's also product placement. Yeah. You'd be like, oh no. Nobody can really write a tweet for you that doesn't sound like it's not you. It's kind of like because it's so tight, it's like it really has to be your wording. Yeah. You would have to get somebody like who really knew you. Well, like I put out when I put out my podcast, I have my producer put out the tweet because he's the one that uploads it. So then I know that as soon as it uploads, he just sends a tweet saying, uh, so I, I give him a blurb to write ahead of time so that when it goes up, it's written. But sometimes if I don't give him one, he writes it, and it's just immediately, I don't know what it is, like something subtle, you can just tell it wasn't sent by the person that it says it is. Well, you get a sense of someone, who they are, when you read just their posts on a message board, or you read their Twitter feed. You don't get it all, but if you're reading 140 characters a day over a long period of time, 140 characters a tweet, rather, over a long period of time, you kind of get a sense of the terrain. Mm -hmm. You kind of get a sense of the way people phrase things and say How things. angry they are. Yeah. Oh, yeah, man. It's a big indicator Ooh, of anger. You could find out some fucked up shit about people just by reading their angry tweets. Yeah. Like, what are you getting mad at, dummy? Yeah. Like, Jesus Christ. Like, person away from your fucking life and just everything's like i have to watch Negative. myself i can get bitter because i think it's funny to right. write something that I'm, and i'm not really being bitter it's just like it's the easy path to a laugh bitter right. yeah and then i look back and i go wow that was 12 bitter ones in a row <laughs> how the fuck do i look right now i uh follow several people that i think are idiots and uh one of the things that i really enjoy following is people that are not very bright but that give a lot of advice yeah. Like people are not very bright, but their their Twitter feed is always advice. Like what you need to do in this world is go for your dreams and like like you <laughs> you you read their Twitter feed and you're like, "Oh, okay." Like it's an insight. It's an insight to like someone struggling for sanity. Like mm -hmm. an insight to someone trying to like find find sense in the world. Mm -hmm. With this dull 9-volt brain. Yeah, it's def it's definitely the access to giving people information has outweighed the ability to supply it in any quality way. There's just there's just like I even feel it. Like I can't I can't tweet every day. Sometimes I just no. don't really have anything to say, but you know, you feel like, "Ah, oh, I should put something out today." And then you write something and you go, "What the fuck did I write that for? That was stupid." I like taking days off of Twitter. I think it's good to do. Yeah. Yeah, cuz I think some days I don't have shit to say. I think taking days off um, you know, I was talking about this the other day. We were, we were talking about stand-up in this way, that taking days off stand-up, taking weeks off stand-up. I think it was Callan I was talking to. We were talking about how if you, you go and go and go, your act gets really tight, everything feels really good. But when you take like a week off and then jump back in, the enthusiasm 
just cranks back up again. Yeah. You know, I think that's the case with pretty much everything in life. If you do things too much, you lose your perspective. Like you lose like what it is about that thing that you really enjoy. Like yeah. you, you need little breaks. Yeah, your bit a bit can get a lot stronger when you wait you walk away from it for a little while and you, you come know, back right? and you go, Oh, I didn't even get why I wrote that bit. That's that's what I was originally thinking. It's about this. Yeah. You tighten it up and you realize that like for me you know, you make a lot of choices throughout a bit. Oh, I can go this way or go that way. Sometimes you just get the clarity when you come back to it to see that you were that that was a, you got a cheap laugh off that one time and you thought that was part of the bit and it wasn't. It was just a it was a you got lost for a second. You got to come back. Yeah, I have a bit that I just added to another bit that I I'd abandoned years ago. Like I had it and then I lost it. Like I had it for a while. It was like a very strong bit. And then I fucked something up with it. I tweaked it wrong. And, and it just got too complicated. And I was like, well, there's too many jokes similar to that. Man. I'll just put it aside. And I put it aside for years. Yeah. Years. And the other day, I was on stage. And I was in the middle of one bit. And I started thinking about, oh, my God. That fits right in there. And like a glove. It just slid into place and crushed. It was like almost like I was holding it. Like yeah. it was a wedge that I didn't have a gap for. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, oh, it's right there. Yeah, yeah. And... All its liabilities were out the window because it didn't like as a standalone bit. It didn't have an ending. It's like mm -hmm. the, the end. But when I shoved it in the middle of this other bit that already had an ending, it just made that bit way better. Yeah, and you didn't have to work on it and fine tune it. You'd already done that work. Yeah, it just needed a place. That's why I think stand-up comedy, like spending time just going over your act, is like one of the one things that we all could do more of. I did this thing with Ari where I went over uh, Shiny Happy Jihad, which was a CD I put out in like 86 or something like that, or 2006 rather. And um, when we went over it, we were talking about why you did this, why you did that. And I, I really hadn't thought about a lot of it. And listening to it for the first time in all these years, like I don't remember the jokes. So like a few of them I remembered, but some of them were really making me laugh. Like I didn't, I never had heard them before, even though they were mine. You know, I yeah. completely forgot them. And going over it like that, like, made me, like, super fucking enthusiastic to go to stand-up. And I got mm -hmm. on this, like, real rampage over the next few weeks after that. Yeah. That really helped me. Yeah. And it made me think, like, man, that's probably an aspect um, of comedy that we don't like to do that we probably all should be doing. Mm -hmm. Just sitting down, going over all of your act. Mm -hmm. Going over your notes, going over all the different bits. And is this the right order for them? What's a better order? Why don't we try this order tonight? Why don't we try this for the first show and that for the second show? Well, that's what's nice about when you go to a club and you work there for three nights is you got two afternoons where you can tape your set and listen to it the next day and think about it and then give yourself some time to write new shit and you know you really have nothing to do except focus on your stand-up for you know two straight days then you come back to LA and you go that you go on at the improv or somewhere and people are like wow you got like fucking lot of new material there that's good and like you wouldn't have that if you were just working in town right or if you were you'd have to be really disciplined yeah really disciplined to make sure that you're just going up and doing this is this 15 minutes is gonna be all about blank you know yeah it's it's just a fun fun fucking thing to do, man. Yeah. S still, after all these years, people who don't know we started out together like within a week of each other. Right. That's crazy. Yeah. Dude, we're old as shit. How, Twenty-five years. Dude, we're old as fuck. Yeah, we're old as shit. But do, remember when you were a kid and you thought of someone who was forty-seven? You're like, what? Yeah. Forty-seven. That was beyond middle Dare age. You. Like middle age is forty. Yeah, you're a dead man. Yeah. I remember when I was in high school and I had a thing for Madonna. I found out Madonna was 26. It's like, God damn, that bitch is old.
I'm like, she's 26. Good Lord. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I yeah, I used to like older. I always liked older women. How old? Well, when I was, um, I guess, I guess when I was in like ninth grade, I fooled around with this girl that was a senior. But it was like, you know, she wasn't doing it because she was turned on by me. It was just like I hung around her a lot, and she was like throwing me a bone, so she'd let me see her tits and stuff. Wow. But then when I was like 19, I dated a woman who was turning 40 that summer. It was like a whole summer-long romance. Whoa. She was this big corporate lawyer, very successful. And I was living out in the Hamptons with my brother and another guy in like this shitty, it was a one-bedroom, just flea-ridden. You woke up every day covered in bites. Oh, my God. And they had a two-bedroom next to us, her and her sister. The Palumbo sisters, and they would—they uh, had this beautiful two-bedroom with like top-shelf liquor, and they were Italian from Queens, and so they would—they'd come out and they would cook pasta and chicken cutlets, everything all weekend, and we would just move over there. My brother was hooking up with one sister, and I was hooking up with the other one, and then we would just like fuck around and eat and drink, and then we'd go dancing with them at night, and then they'd leave on Sunday night. And they'd give us like all this Tupperware with all the leftovers in it that we'd we'd survive on for a couple more days. And then they come out on the weekends. Oh, she was the greatest. Wow. Yeah. Forty, huh? Forty years and, old. And you were nineteen. I was nineteen. How was her body? Good, good. Yeah. You know, Italian girls, they age well. <laughs> that brown skin, tight. Was she getting off a big divorce? Good feet. No. No. She, she was a workaholic. I think she was. Uh, you know, she was a corporate lawyer. She was big. God damn. Made a lot of money. Was she on top most of the time? Yeah, she took control. Wow. She'd yeah. ride it? She'd ride it. Yeah, she'd hold the base, and then it was all- Damn. It, it was, was all like hers. Her. All up to her. Wow. Standard shift. She fucked you. She fucked me. Whoa. I'd push back, and she'd yell at me. Whoa. She, you don't move. Whoa. You little shit. Spit you're, in your mouth? You're in high school. Spit in my mouth. <laughs> Stick her feet in my... That's where the foot thing came from. She would stick her feet in your oh, mouth? Oh, God, no. No. <laughs> Were you allowed to be on top? Oh, yeah. Now, look, I was an animal. When I was 19, I was an animal. Really? I couldn't be stopped. Ooh, tell me I more. Just, I just was so horny. <laughs> I was so horny that when women finally oh. let me start having sex with them, yeah. I would ravage them. I would just... Mm. I My hands... I was... You wouldn't see me laying with my arms by my side. I didn't care for having sex for an hour. I was still working. I would grab a nipple, fucking fish hook. The hands were moving <laughs> all the time. Can I get one in the asshole? Then I, then I am. I'm checking. I'm going to check the oil. Let's check it. Yeah. Let's every see time. see we can get away with here. How far can I push it on every mm. single encounter? That was my MO. Wow. Yeah. You're an animal. Then Look. they stop you and you go, all right, that's the line. We don't cross that. <laughs> Till next time. We try it again. If you thought about the difference between you as like a 12-year-old or 11-year-old and then puberty and then riding the furious waves of puberty, which is what I call like 16, 17, 18. Yeah. Like those years, like into 19 even, like by the time you like figure out how to stay on the wave, the, the wave of hormones that your body starts producing and how different your your observations on life are. Mm. Like when you're 10, you don't give a fuck about ass or tits or feet or high heels or the way a girl puts her <laughs> lipstick on. But when you're 17, you're jerking off to magazines. Mm -hmm. Like you're taking magazines, you're beating off on the girl's pictures on magazines mm. like look at naked bodies and you're beating off like yeah and all i can just remember going into a white noise space where nothing else mattered i was jerking off and the world shut down around me it was just so intense it was like i guess what somebody would feel like if they went in like heroin nod it was so like 
all-encompassing. Yeah. Yeah, it's a drug. I mean, your body's trying to reproduce. Your body's trying to give you all these fucking neurochemicals, these feel-good juices to pump through your body. Yeah. Serotonin and dopamine and love and oxytocin and come, hurry up, come. <laughs> ah, good, we win. We reproduce. <laughs> and the eggs break open. The little yeah. kid comes out screaming. You're like, how the fuck? Yeah. Because they tricked you with that cum juice. That That's it. feeling that you get when you just, oh, rub my balls. Oh. That's how you make a person. That sweet relief is yeah. this weird biological trick. Isn't that amazing? It's the most it's the most intense, incredible thing you do, and it's also the most intense, incredible feeling that you're having while you mm. do it. And if you don't smoke pot, you don't even know what sex feels like. You think you do. Mm. Weed makes sex feel so much better. Hey, what did you think of that article I sent you from The New Yorker about the... Fascinating. Uh, isn't that wild? Yeah. Explain what it is. Basically, you know, all the testing that they did on mushrooms and LSD back in the 60s. I mean, starting, I think they started in what, like the 40s, right? Well, Gordon Wasson was the guy who originally started bringing mushrooms to the Western world. He was the one who started, I think it was Life magazine. They published some shit about him or some shit about uh, his, uh, his uh, trials to Mexico, his travels to Mexico and his experiments with magic mushrooms. I think that was, I think that was in the 50s. Yeah, so, so they did all these studies, and then obviously the CIA did all the LSD studies in the 50s and 60s, or mostly 50s, I think. And then all of a sudden, they outlawed it, and they just said, bury that data, and it just disappeared. You cannot find any of the testing results that they did from back then. And so they lost a lot of good progress. And so this New Yorker piece is talking about how Suddenly, scientists are getting the green light from major universities. Harvard and Yale and Boston University are all funding studies to look back into, what do you call the drug in magic mushrooms? Psilocybin. Psilocybin. Yeah. And what they're doing is they're doing controlled testing, um, and they're giving it to people specifically that have terminal illnesses and helping them deal with the, you know, the their mortality, literally, that they're going to die. And how do you wrap your head around that? How do you deal with the depression that comes with that? And they're giving them the mushrooms, and they're having, they're, 70% of them are having mystical experiences, like godlike experiences. And then they are holding on to it. It doesn't go away. They are walking through the rest of their lives, realizing that all is love. They said that's the the common thread that runs through all of them is that it's all about love. And they get that in their head and they die with it. Whenever, you know, if they last another year or two years, they don't need another experience on the mushrooms to get back to that place. It stays with them. Well, I think if you're at a real transformative period of your life, you know, I mean, that's the biggest transformation ever, right? Right. Going from life to death, the ultimate last trip that we all take you're probably like super emotional and very engaged. And I would imagine that under that kind of stress and that kind of like uncertainty, a mushroom trip would be even more profound. But if you have a, a real powerful psychedelic trip and it doesn't change your, your complete total view of, of reality, you probably just didn't get a high enough dose. That's all it is. I mean, I know I've talked to a lot of people who've done mushrooms and they loved it. They had a great time. They're like, oh, my God, we were on the beach. We were so silly. We laughed for hours. It was so beautiful. It was this amazing experience. Opened me up to the way the world was and made me feel like 
they probably had that wonderful experience. They really probably did. But the difference between that kind of experience and like what they're giving these people in these these trials, like you give people like five dried grams of psilocybin mushrooms, that's like a big breakthrough dose. And you have this overwhelming, like incredible, visionary, like transformative experience that most people don't get to. Like the DMT experience is supposedly the most intense out of all the psychedelics, out of all the the, the what McKenna used to call like the center of the mandala. If there's all, all, all psychedelic experiences vary, whether it's peyote or mushrooms or, um, you know, sage, which is... Um, um, uh, what is it? That that fucking one that everybody gets at grocery stores is still available. Salvia, Salvia divinorum. This is essentially like a sage plant. They all like reach some different psychedelic state, but the center of the mandala, the craziest one, is the dimethyltryptamine experience. And if you have the dimethyltryptamine experience, like it's, it's impossible to look at the rest of reality the same way again because you always know that that's that's in your head. You how long that does that last? Very very short. It's only like 15 minutes. No, but I'm saying how long does the effect That's last? The, it depends on how much you entrench yourself in the, the common threads and themes and pathways of everyday life. You can jump right back into everyday life and it doesn't last very long at all. It's like this unbelievably profound, loving experience where when it's happening, you, you, you just feel overwhelmed first of all, by the truth in these entities that you're encountering, like how much they know about you, like how much they know about who you are. And then the reality of like, that might not even be entities, it might be you, it might be there are many yous that encompass you, just like there's billions of E. coli living in your gut, there might be like various streams of consciousness that are almost like entities that exist in your mind at any given time. And you might be tapping into these and turning these to 11 when you're on a psychedelic. It might be what the psychedelic is really doing is introducing you to the potential of all the chemicals in your mind if like optimized in this one brief burst of love and color and, and, and just geometric objects and patterns, just representing imagination at its fullest, wildest, wildest, most open flower. And then that might be what's happening when you're doing these things. But regardless of what the actual, you know, whether it's both or neither one, the experiences themselves, they change the way you view the world because you know that that's possible now, where you never knew that that was possible. You always felt like, Everything in my life, you know, if, if I, there was a scale from the worst experiences I've ever had to the best experiences I've ever had, everything is sort of categorized. So I was like, well, I know what it's like to be scared. Well, I know what it's like to be in a car accident. Well, I know what it's like to get a blowjob. I know what it's like to play football. I know, you know, you know, you have all these things and you say, well, I have a pretty good idea of what life is. And then you take three hits off of this little vaporizer pipe and you hear this like crackling, like burning plastic, and you see this chrysanthemum looking sort of like the flower of life. You know that flower of life that's described? Like you, you, uh, you see it in a lot of like ancient Hindu art. Yeah. It's, um, it's a geometric pattern. And um, this flower of life, you, you see this flower of this life. This on DMT. DMT. Oh, yeah, for sure. Almost everybody sees it. You see some version of it, but 
the things that are you're seeing are happening so fast it's so diff and they're all they they're never the same thing like you look at something and it becomes something else like instantly constantly always changing so you never can really lock on to anything everything is constantly moving and morphing and looking at you and sometimes it's like gestures and they're giving you the finger yeah. and, and then they disappear behind these fractal cyclones of geometric patterns that turn into flowers that turn into grass that turn into babies coming out of vaginas that turn into you they turn into handshakes and hugs and love and it is insane and it happens for about 15 minutes. And when it's over, just knowing that that can ever happen. Yeah. It's just a matter of whether or not you remember it. Well, they said also it, it deals with depression. It helps people with depression a lot. And I think it's maybe that when you're depressed for long enough, you literally forget what it feels like to feel good. Yeah. And I think that by giving you that intense of a good positive experience, it makes you go, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to try. I'm supposed to, you know, achieve that in whatever means I can, you know, whether it's exercise or, you know, sex or whatever it is that you've just stopped doing because you're so depressed it gives you the inspiration to try to get back there yeah and it also it's like a really intense form of love you know that, that's a weird way to describe it but the psychedelic experiences make you feel loved not to everybody and but does that mean you have everybody to do shouldn't it? do it because some people have mental issues some people regular reality is slippery already yeah and they, sh they probably shouldn't be doing anything right but the people that do do it that are in a good place when they wind up doing it uh, oftentimes experience this like profound sense of being loved how important is it who you do it with very important set and that's what setting. it said in this is they have people that walk you through it that yeah. are professionals at guiding you through this kind of experience yeah that's super 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 important um like a lot of those indigenous tribes that do these uh shamanic rituals they have like very like rigid sort of ideas of like this is what we do we sit down and we're all gonna like you know we're all gonna talk we're all gonna drink this liquid and this guy's gonna blow tobacco smoke and play the drums and it's like slowly gonna come on and it's like orchestrated like they're they're setting this up and this guy's gonna sing and these guys will sing these things called ikaros and these ikaros are these songs that they they sing that accompany the dmt experience so when you, when you smoke DMT and you listen to these songs, you see these things dancing. Like as they're, like I'll play it for you. I've played it on the podcast. I think there's like think, tours now of some of these native places to, to oh, yeah. take the, uh, oh, the there's whole a lot experience. Of them. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of them, dude. Oh, I got it on my phone. There's a lot of these fucking tours. They're doing it all over the place. And they're doing it, you know, some of them, it's not good too. Because there's going to be people that are capitalizing on those yeah. situations where, you know, they, they're just profiting of course you, you see people holding up their and... cell phones recording it yeah yeah i got it right here no, oh plug it in no nah, i'll just play it on the, the the thing here but um i think that uh it should all be legal i think you should be able to do whatever you want to do as far as uh you want to if you want to run around and you want to have a good time and do mushrooms or drink whiskey or you know whatever it is well the but, whole scare used to be i'm sorry i was gonna say but when you see these studies coming out uh about the benefits of it you just it makes you feel bad that all these people were kept from that for so many decades that like there's a lot of people over from 1970 when they made mushrooms illegal and lsd and pretty much everything to 2014 that's horrible that's 44 45 years while these really beneficial plants have been illegal mm -hmm. and for no fucking reason there's no yeah. no reason that makes any sense yeah it's um 
Man, it was it was the Rockefeller laws, right? Was that what uh, started? Uh, someone, someone, I don't know who was responsible for it all, but there was this sweeping illegalization or you know sweeping uh, prohibition act that covered shit that's not even psychoactive. There's like they just started marking things illegal, like a bunch. Yeah. They didn't know exactly what was legal, what wasn't legal, but they lumped shit in like everything that was Schedule One. There's all non-toxic, non-lethal drugs that are Schedule One, like a giant percentage of them, which is crazy because that just shows you that there's a giant problem with the way they're classifying drugs still in 2015. Mm. Marijuana federally is still a Schedule One yeah, drug. Right, right. It's fucking same completely as ridiculous. Yeah. Same as, yes, same as cocaine. Well, cocaine um, and then heroin is Schedule Two, right? Because I think they have medicinal uses you know, because opiates they use for painkillers, and there's medical cocaine. I'm, I'm going to make sure that I, I'm right about that, because I think they might have changed that. Well, that was the whole thing that uh, black people feel like, is that why is it that crack is Schedule 1 and cocaine is Schedule Because Because crack is for black people and cocaine is for white people is the uh, yeah. It's true, which is unbelievably racist, yeah. right? There's the issue. It's Heroin is, is one. It used to be two, I believe. Now it's one. And coke is still two. Which is wow. fucking bananas. But look, psilocybin, 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 and marijuana, and LSD, and mescaline. Jesus Christ. Is there a danger with uh, psilocybin? No. You can't freak out on it? Yeah, you could definitely freak out. But you come back? Well, hopefully. I so mean, there look, is a possibility. <laughs> if you get that close to the abyss, I mean, the experiences that you have in those things, if you have a weak heart it would probably be incredibly taxing because a lot of people feel like they're going to die. They relive their entire life. They look at themselves through this really intense introspective vision that freaks them out. You know, the, the, the harsh introspective aspects of a lot of these psychedelics really bother some people. Mm. And if you're like barely hanging on, if you're, you're like on the verge of a heart attack, it could push you over the top. Adderall's schedule too. I used to take that shit. Well, that's legal. Yeah. All that shit they could prescribe. Look at all that stuff. It's a lot of stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of drugs up there. Look at all those drugs. They were they did a special on 60 Minutes last night about um, that they they think they have a cure for the, uh, the Ebola virus. It, I mean, it worked. They only had like seven batches of it, and they gave it to seven people, and they were all cured. But that they they knew about it since the 70s, but it's taken them this many years to develop it because none of the pharmaceutical companies can make a profit off of it. Because the government wasn't buying it. They weren't really, you know, actively, you know, they they were looking for a cure, but not really putting any money behind it. And so, but in order to make this cure, they have to like take fucking thousands of acres of this special kind of tobacco and uh, they have to soak it in this chemical and all to come up with like a dozen doses. Wow. It's crazy. That's so strange. When... When you think about what these indigenous tribes have been able to do with these plants, that's when it gets really strange. Think about the fact they've, they've figured out like a big percentage of the pharmaceutical drugs that we use today, a big percentage of them come from like rainforests. They find really? these plants. Yeah, they find a lot of plants. Like they're constantly searching the rainforest for different medicinal properties of plants. They think that one day they're going to come up with some plant that cures cancer. They're going to find it in the Amazon. They use them for a lot of different purposes. Hmm. Which is, you know, weird. These people figured out some of them on their own. You know, the ayahuasca thing, they figured that thing on their own. Mm. They figured out how to blend plants and make a drug out of it. Like, they figured out how to boil it and the, the whole thing. They use a pot and they boil it. 
and it takes hours. Like, yeah. And they all figured out a way how to do this, which is just... A lot of trial and error, a lot of stuff they tried that somebody died from, and they went, well, sure. check that one off. Yeah, like the the knowledge of what you can eat in your neighborhood. Yeah. Fucking super important, yeah. right? The wrong, the wrong little stripe on a frog, and you're dead. You know, the wrong little, you know, little spot on a bug yeah. that can kill you. Knowing how to plant the seeds in a way that makes them grow correctly and how to burn out the forest when it needs to be burned out. Yeah. I was just in Yellowstone, and they were, they were talking about how that, you know, that the native people used to set fires. They just, they knew the schedule to rotate burning the, the uh, forest out so that they didn't get super fires. And that the ashes were, was that it? Yeah, this is the sound that you listen to when you're fucked up on DMT. I wish I could describe what it looks like, but you see the song. When you're, when you're under the influence, you actually see it. Like the song takes place in a, in a three-dimensional form. It's like it's a dancing thing. It's not just a sound. It becomes like a dancing object in your mind. Like it transforms the trip. And do people describe it similarly, what they see? <sighs> yeah, but it's, it's hard to describe. So I think they're saying something similar, but there's no real words for it. Mm. Like, the, like everything that I've said, the way I described it, is really shitty. It's like the, you can't really do it. You don't, there's no context for the experience. The experience is so weird, there's no context for it. Mm. So it doesn't, like if you described it and I, I listened to your description, I'm like, I guess we were in the same place. But it's not like, yeah, there was this tree. You remember there was a tree and it had a broken branch and it laid over. Oh, yeah, I remember that. It was yeah. right near the fountain. Yes. And it's not like that. Like you would be describing it to me and I'd be like, okay, maybe. Complex geometric patterns floating in and out of existence, constantly morphing in front of you. It's all love and understand. I guess. I guess you were in the same spot. You know. Was there a Seven <laughs> Eleven? <laughs> what did it smell like? Did it smell like bum piss? <laughs> yes, bum piss. Oh, we were in the same spot. Yeah. You know, you could talk about like, oh, I went to the ski lodge. You know, you walk in, there's a big moose in the wall. Oh yeah, yeah, I've been in that spot. You say, you know, oh, we did LSD. What was it like? Oh, it's just, I spent an hour staring in the mirror. And uh, I watched my entire life from birth to that moment yeah. on fast forward. Yeah. You know, which, okay. You know. That's because you, you're not going to jot it down while you're doing it. it it'd be <sighs> great if they come up with the technology where they can videotape what your imagination is going through while you're tripping on something and then show it in major theaters around the country. That's one of the things that someone, it might have been McKenna again, was speculating that one of the best ways to deliver um, uh, a psychedelic trip to someone was w virtual reality and figuring out a way through like CGI imagery to reproduce the effects of the trip, like this, to reproduce what you're seeing. Yeah. And if they could get the technology to that point where they could, someone could go to trip, you know, do mushrooms or do DMT trip, and then figure out a way to reproduce that. Then you would take the drugs out. Somebody could just watch the trip and feel the trip. Yeah. 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 That it could be possible. That it could be done that way. He was. He was totally believing it could be done that way. There's, there's people that say they could do it with yoga, man. There's people that say they can have full blown psychedelic experiences, hallucinations, visuals. Yeah. You know, transported to the center of the universe and d dancing with angels, the whole deal. And they do it all through yoga. Yeah. Yeah. I know with meditation, there's certain levels you can get to. I mean, I, I do very basic TM. I've been doing it for like six months, but I do it twice a day. Yeah. 
What made you start? Um, everybody I talked to that had done it had a profound experience with it. You know, their lives were better. You know, you guys like, you know, Seinfeld has done it forever. And um, a lot of comics that, uh, that I like were doing it. What do you do? It's really simple. It's a very unguided meditation. You just kind of sit in a comfortable place. They give you uh, a mantra that you do. And you're not tied to the mantra. You're not like repeating it over and over again. And that's all you think about. It's more of like it kind of leads you. Um, it's sort of the way they describe it is it's almost like it's off in the distance and you can hear it, but you're not, it's not your whole focus. And then your brain can go wherever it's going to go. You can go into little daydreams and then you can gently notice that and pull yourself back to the mantra and do that. And you just let yourself go with it. And it's very non-judgmental. You don't ever judge where your mind went. You don't snap yourself back to it. And then, uh, and then it ends. It feels like, it feels like, Five, ten minutes, and 20 minutes ends. I set my alarm, and then you just feel totally rested and centered, and stress is gone. And, like, mm. my baseline of depression has been so much higher since I started. You mean the baseline, meaning, like... Like, I get depression, and this helped me a lot. Oh, so you're not saying, that like, the depression is higher? No, I'd say the, the, right. bad, the bad part of the depression, the level is higher. Right. Um... That's inf that's really fascinating. And what is the mantra? Like, what do you say? Well, they give each person a different one. I mean, I'm, there's X number of mantras. I don't know how many there are, but they assign them to you. Like, what? Give me an example. Of what a mantra? Well, like, Om is like the you know right. classic mantra. So it so doesn't have to be a, a word. It could be like no. A, it's a sound. It's always a sound. Yeah. So you just sit there and make. Well, it's the sound. Sanskrit, so it's different Sanskrit sounds. TM is ta like transcendental meditation is all yeah. Sanskrit. Right. Wow. And so just sitting there going, home. Well, no, it's om. all, you don't say it. You don't verbalize it. In your mind. In your mind you do it. But it does have a resonant sound because they say even mentally there's some kind of reverberation that goes on. So yeah. this, just doing this, has raised, like, whatever depression that you do get, it takes a longer time to come on and it's, it's less impactful. It doesn't stay. It doesn't stay. And I don't go down as far as I oh. did. And that's probably the chief reason I started is that I'd, I'd read a lot about it and it said that that's one of the main things. You know, anxiety and depression can be tied hand in hand. I, I, don't, experience, I don't think I experience anxiety as much as just, you know, my family has depression. My, you know, everybody in my family's got it. And it's just something that, you know, you can, you can medicate it, you can exercise it out, or you can, you know, there's a lot of different ways to go at it. That's a weird way um, that we have to regulate the mind, like to manage the mind. By just taking a thing, like a, a sound, and rolling it over in your mind over and over and over again. And it's through, almost like a cycle, like a cleaning cycle. Yeah, it's like stopping the cycle. It's stopping the cycle of thoughts that are nonstop in your mind. Right. It gives you a break. It's almost like it's like doing a cleanse. It gives your stomach and your colon a chance to clean itself. So twice a day, you're stopping that cycle. And, and that's the thing that I find with it is that I get bored of the cycle. Like if I'm going through my day, I'm having a cycle of thoughts like anybody does. And you don't notice that it's a cycle until you stop and it's all that's in your mind. And then you go, oh, you're fucking, that's boring. Mm. We've already thought that. Yeah. And you just you kind of let it go and it goes away. That's that. I like that idea of a cleaning cycle. Like you, you introduce like a cleaning agent for twenty minutes, and you uh, nip all the buds and parse mm -hmm. all the problems and settle it all down. That makes mm -hmm. sense because me at my worst in my life, the, the when I've felt most out of control in my life or doing the wrong shit or you know least in control of my my uh, emotions, I've always felt like I was on 
like too much momentum. Like I couldn't stop. Like I was like the, the momentum of all my past acts was like overwhelming me. And I was just running to keep from getting run yeah. over. And like something like TM, or for me, it became uh, martial arts and then later the tank. The tank helps a lot to just get into that space where you just let it all go. And once you do let it all go, you could start fresh. Right. But when you don't get a chance to do that, it seems like you're constantly dealing with this phone call, what's connected to that thing that you got to take care of, and you didn't clean out that thing, and fuck, and this guy wants to meet you because you're supposed to do that thing. And it's all like, yeah. ah, it all builds up to the point where you're, the anxiety is oftentimes just the data, the sheer data that you're dealing with every day in life. Yeah. Whether it's emotional shit, whether it's memory shit, whether it's work-related shit or family-related shit, it's like, Fuck. And your thoughts all go to, they all go back to, I mean, not to be Freudian, because I'm, I'm not Freudian, but there are, there are aberrations in your thoughts in terms of how we perceive ourselves and what external events, how we identify ourselves based on external events, like, I didn't get this job. That means, well, you can, you can control what that means. There's ways of having you know, cognitive changes where you stop yourself from thinking what you thought from being a child and having a father that beat you or even something more subtle, you know, things that affected over time the way you connected external events to how you felt about yourself. And you can go in and you can just, by, by repeating, you know, no, that doesn't mean that, you know, that just means that this, this happened, like power of now. It's like you don't, you don't, uh, you know, a thought is not a reality. It's just something that is flowing through you and you can notice it you can comment on it without internalizing it and, and going for the full ride. They say that's one of the things that people have the hardest time with when it comes to uh, sufferers, um, people that are trying to overcome the abuse that they had when they were in childhood, that, when they were in childhood, because that abuse oftentimes like defines them. They feel like they're a shitty person for have been being abused. You're damaged because yeah. you've been abused and you yeah. sort of define yourself by this abuse that you've suffered. Yeah. Where you can't look at the bright side of things. Like you you look like it's always bad things are always going to happen to you. It's like if you've defined yourself in some way because of the abuse that you've suffered. Or you even caused the abuse because you're bad. Right. Yeah, you could have There that was a thought, reason yeah. why I was beat. It's my fault. So then when anything <sighs> bad happens in your life, you go back to thinking you caused it. It makes you think if this psychedelic le legislation of the 1970s if it never had been passed and if these 35 years since that happened if people had been allowed to explore these things and come to these conclusions and try to figure out like what well what are what are the beneficial aspects of the way we behave and the way we think and the way we sort of qualify and quantify life's meaning whether it's financial or whether it's family like what is, what what what's really smart about this and how much more could we have done if people were doing mushrooms, right. doing acid? Doing, yeah. we would, so much more thinking would have taken place on these really, you know, people could say they're frivolous, There's just, they're, these are distractions, but they're not. You know, these are, these are these ideas and concepts that you develop when you're either doing psychedelics or meditating or anything where you're involved in sort of an active assessment and resetting of your consciousness. Whether it's yoga, meditation, whatever the fuck it is, tanks, uh, isolation tanks, 
what, what you're doing is you're allowing yourself time to reflect on what you're doing and whether or not it's beneficial and what could be changed. And if you don't have that reflection time, you oftentimes don't change unless you fall completely apart and you're you forced to, to rebuild. Out to change. Yeah, yeah that, that happens to a lot of people. They have that's what they always say about drug addicts. They have to hit rock bottom. They got to hit bottom. Anything gambling, you know, and and we're always shocked by people's bottoms. Like you know, you look at somebody who just keeps fucking up. Like you know, Britney Spears when she was really going down the rails. It was like, hasn't she hit bottom yet? Nope, yeah. not even close. Yeah. And then there's other people like me. I had a pretty shallow bottom. I quit drinking when I was like, I don't know, 24. And uh, I'd started drinking when I was probably 12. So I drank for, you know, a decent period of time. But like, I wasn't blowing guys for a sandwich. I was just feeling like it was controlling my life. I was feeling like this is something I'm going to when I'm feeling sad or I'm going to when I'm feeling uh, stressed or whatever. It was definitely the relationship to alcohol I had was bad because my father was an alcoholic. You know, he died at 51. And so I just knew I didn't want to go down that path. So I, I had what you'd call a shallow bottom. But, you know, to see other people where it just can get, it can get so extreme, but that's the only time you really change. And so for me, I think changing it with a shallow bottom meant that there was so much more baggage that went with it. You know, that, that I was bottoming out with feeling that I was dependent on something and I wasn't, I couldn't be myself fully because there was a part of my psyche that was locked up in this thing. And mm. that was enough for me to go, I got to change. I don't want to live my life like that. You did it young, man. I remember when you did it. I remember it because I, I remember you were almost like, like you had remorse, you know, that you had to do this. Mm. Like I felt like there was almost a sadness about you, about the having it like, fuck. Yeah. I can't do this. I just can't do it. I'm sorry. I'm going to miss it, but it's over. Yeah. And you just, you just stopped. You know, you didn't have to fucking join AA with all these other comics. There was a million comics that were in AA and they were all like, they had this like real weird preachy thing about them too. They'd look at you drinking, they'd shake their head. Mm. They were really annoying. You know, you didn't do that. You just stopped drinking. You stopped. Yeah, and it's 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 funny because Boston, AA in Boston is a very intense thing because this, with the same power they drank with, they got sober with. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they would rage with sobriety. Yeah. And, you know, and look, God bless them. The people that used it and it worked for them, that's fantastic. But for some of them, it became like two meetings a day and, you know, you got three sponsors and, you, and it's like, you know, that's great, but... Uh, you know, move, move along a little bit here. You're getting a little caught up in this thing. Well, it becomes their culture. Yeah. They're, the culture of sober people. Yeah. That's a big culture. It's a strong culture. Yeah. And if so, again, like for some people, it's life or death. It literally is those are the stakes with the meetings. Oh, yeah, man. And also, it's a good launching pad for a lot of comics. Oh, they yeah. They get up and do those meetings. They tell hilarious stories mm -hmm. about waking up shit-faced, stuffed into a laundry machine. And, you know, they have these ridiculous shit-their-pants stories. Best and, crowd yeah. of all time. They're all yeah. sober. They're jacked up on coffee. They love it. <laughs> and they know what the fuck you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. You know, they're having a good time. I remember going to some. There was this thing. I think it was called, like, Miski Pa or something. I don't know why I remember that. But it was in Worcester, and the AA community gets together, and they do these conventions where they had, like, you know, a 1,000 people coming from all over New England staying in this hotel. And just having meetings, you know, the 9 a.m., there's a 12, 12 o'clock step meeting, wow. and, and they'd all go. And apparently, 
everybody's fucking everybody because they got all this energy to channel and burn off. And so it's just hypersexual, obviously very social. I mean, what's more social than you sit down in a meeting and the person next to you go, how you doing, 12 years sober? How you doing? I'm great, 10 years sober. Somebody does a motivational talk, you clap, you laugh, everybody has a coffee halfway through. What a fucking great way to meet people. And now you're just like, you normally you would go get drunk and pass out and instead you're awake. And jacked up on coffee. And you all have something in common. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about your sobriety while you fuck. <laughs> oh, I'm drunk with your cock. People love little groups. Being yeah. part of a nice little group that everybody else is trying to run marathons. Let's yeah. all get our marathon runners group together. Yeah. Oh, we're all owners of Dotsons. We're going to get our Dotsons. Oh, little doggies. Look, you're a little Dotson. I got a Dotson, too. I think you meant Dotsons because it's that probably too. a group of people that own Dotsons. Sure. Those old 240Zs. Those are yeah. the shit. Yep. Those old little Japanese sports cars, those were fucking badass. But those little groups of people, man, no matter what it is, they just people love being part dog of those park. You ever go to a dog park? What are you, shit me? Yeah, Same it. people every day. And you know what they talk about while they hang out? Dogs. Yeah. That's all they talk about. Well, I got a corgi. Mine's half corgi, half poodle, so it's a She is such a Pomeranian. Let me tell you, she's <laughs> such a Pomeranian. Sometimes she looks in the mirror and she thinks it's another Pomeranian. Mm, she barks. It's adorable. But she's protective. I mean, you look at the size of her. You wouldn't think she's protective. Oh, she becomes an animal. She becomes a bear. How many people hear that? Did you ever see Best in Show? Oh, yeah. That Fucking was great. amazing. That was awesome. They nailed it. Yeah. They nailed that culture and they did it in a subtle enough way. So it was just just ridiculous enough where you go, that would never happen. Like you go, that could fucking totally happen. Yeah. Yeah, those people that people that are really into anything, man. No matter what it is, it's always funny. Yeah, it's it's I mean, even to us, like the way we talk about comedy. I'm sure people think it's hilarious. Yeah, you got to have something because, uh, and I think as you get older, the more you want. Because I think you you don't realize when you're young that having a shared history about something is going to be so important. The, the nostalgia of it, the the, the self identity of it, and so. As you get older, all of a sudden, like you got guys now that are, you know, just rejoicing in the fact that they're geeks, yeah. that they all watched Star Wars when they were kids, and now yeah. they get together and they talk about it. When they were watching Star Wars as a kid, they felt like a fucking geek, and they yeah. weren't necessarily sharing it with anybody. They were quietly watching it again and again, and then crying in their father's basement. You know, there wasn't like a solidarity about it. No, and you remember when, um, like, comic books used to be like for losers. Yeah. Like. When I got rid of my comic books, I remember the girl I was dating was like, good, why do you need them? Why'd you have them still? You're 21. I'm like, I only got rid of them because I'm fucking broke. I sold them to eat. I missed them. I missed all of them. I collected yeah. those for a long fucking time. I, and I sold them for like you know, just no money. And I remember what it was, but I had like these uh, boxes, you know, I had like three or four boxes filled with comics that I collected from the time I was like 15. No shit. Yeah, probably even earlier. No, way earlier because I had a couple of them from the time I was like 12 that I, I really started collecting when I moved to Boston. But before that, eh, I guess I had some in San Francisco too. But the point being, I'd have them. I'd have them for a good chunk of my life, mm. and I would open the plastic bags and pull out the fucking Hulk and you know, like d different episodes that were like valuable. Uh -huh. like, this one's worth five bucks, right. you know, like old X Men and Punishers, and I love those fucking things. But you were taught that you were like a loser, like you're clinging onto some childhood stupidity. Now they have Comic Con, a yeah. million people fly from all over the country to hang out in San Diego, and they all yep. wear 
costumes and shit. And those those magazines would be worth a lot of money right now. Probably. I had I had all the Mad magazines starting in 1975. I had a subscription all the way through. I'm probably like three, four, five years, and I had them all. And then my mom just <sighs> tossed them all out while I was in college. Cleaned oh out the my attic. God. Devastated because like you, I used to actually go back and read them. I thought they were hilarious. Those old Mad magazines were fucking brilliant. Yeah. Those were good. My yeah. parents bought those when I was a little kid. I used to read them in the toilet. They used to, you know what else they had? R. Crumb. My stepdad was into R. Crumb. No shit. Yeah, you ever read oh, his yeah. comics? Yeah, yeah. I've read that and the fabulous Freak Brothers. My stepdad's a hippie. And uh, when I was like seven, eight years old, when we all started living together, I guess it was like seven, uh, I got introduced to this weird kind of comic books they would leave in the bathroom the fabulous freak brothers and the, that's san francisco yeah yeah that's when i was living in san francisco from like seven to eleven no but i mean i think the artist they're that's san francisco right was he our crumb so. did right yeah, yeah. our crumb was san francisco did you ever see that uh documentary yeah Fascinating. yeah really Shit. cool he was a weird motherfucker. Yep. still is a weird motherfucker is he still alive yeah wow i think he lives in france yeah. i think he moved to paris or something but his images like he would draw these women with these ridiculous ridiculous enormous asses and like men would be riding them and shit it was mm -hmm. just very strange yeah. fetish and like seeing that as like a little boy i remember thinking like what who is this weird fucking guy and yeah. why is he drawing these people like this yeah yeah the fabulous freak brothers was a big one like there's all like, they were all like hippie comic strips all black yeah. and white comic books that were sort of designed for adults it was very strange stuff yeah, it was very, uh, it was very like, you could call it perverted, but it was actually just really raw. It yeah. was like, it was like, it wasn't dirty. It was just graphic. Yeah, it was just like, so, and, and resonated. It seemed kind of honest. Yeah. Like watching this weird fucking guy with glasses, R. Crumb, like his version of himself, they would do like riding on top of these women that with these enormous asses and high heels and they... It was very strange, yeah. but you could tell, like, for him, this was like this wild fantasy. I gotta see that movie out. again. It's really good. Shit. Insight into, you know, a, a really extremely creative artist and all the weird demons that that flow through his brain that yeah. make him, or, or angels, whatever it is, yeah. that make him create his very strange art. I'm trying to think if there's anything like that today. I mean, there's... There's all these cartoons, like Adult Swim kind of cartoons that are a little offbeat, but they're nowhere near as raw as this stuff is. No. I think that if you did it today, you'd be accused of being misogynist. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, his stuff was definitely had race, you know, a lot of racist overtones. And, yeah. But it, but it was, that's what I mean by it was raw. It was honest. It was like, no, this is how this guy thinks. He's writing. Yeah. There's something that you could appreciate about this guy is unadulterated putting his thoughts on, on paper. Yeah, let's Google R. Crumb Racism. And then look at this. Bam. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's doing total blackface yeah. images. Like, Jesus Christ. Yeah. But he was like a hero of the counterculture at the time. Oh, yeah. Like, it, he did a lot of like, oh, my God, look at this one. Shit. I mean, these are really fucking racist, yeah. man. Holy shit. But they had a sense of humor to them that you had to be, you had to be in on the joke. I guess. If you just looked at it from the outside, you would just be like, what the fuck kind of hate mail is this? I know, man. Wow, this is weird. This is, is weird to see. I had forgotten how racist some of this shit was and how weird some of it was. Like, there's him and this woman with these enormous, like, horse-like legs. Like, they were so exaggerated. 
the size of their asses and legs. He was the first big ass guy, way before J Lo, uh -huh. way before any any of these people. He was like the first. He was like really into giant asses, but he also had like really cool like political shit. You know, he had like like here's one of him riding a woman. Like, look at that. How strange. Look at the legs, yeah. Yeah, he would ride these women that were in cut-off jeans. Jesus Christ. Oh, Art yeah, I've seen this. This is, a, this is a famous one. The true Amazon, low center of gravity, wide hips, strong back. He, like, had these weird fetishes about thick, powerful women that he would ride. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what his sex life was. You think he, was, he must have been big prostitutes. Uh, damn, who knows? I wonder if he would tell us. He you got to get him on your podcast. Yeah, I bet he doesn't do podcasts. I mean, I, I don't know where he even is. I think he is in France. Do you think he's on Twitter? I'm going to say no. What do you think? I'm going to say that if you got in touch with him and you said, I'll come to you, I want to talk to you, I'm a big fan, he wouldn't give a shit if it was a podcast or whatever. I bet you that guy would sit down with you. Really? Yeah. That's I my guess. It. I would say just the opposite. I'd say he's just some fucking weird guy who likes to hide from people. But I might be wrong. Only one I mean, way I just, to find out. I think you'd be kind of introverted. Some of it is here, drawing a blank with Robert Crumb is a Guardian article. Some of his work is pretty striking, but he's hardly worthy of his current status as god of the literary underground. Wow. These are people who are upset. I remember my sister yeah. used to work at an art gallery in New York, the Alexander Gallery. And they had an R. Crumb exhibit. And I remember asking her and she said, no, nah, he didn't come. Yeah. It was a huge, like, month-long exhibit. Yeah, he probably doesn't want to deal with all the weirdness that he must get from these kind of strange images. If you're, Most of your images are, like, women with big, giant asses and huge legs, tree-trunk legs. And a lot of them have dudes riding these women. Like, people would get upset at you. Those would be uncomfortable moments. Why are you making me look at this? What is yeah. this? What is your obsession with women with giant ankles? I think they put him. I think they used to put him in penthouse. Really? I think so. Hmm. This is really interesting. Keep on trucking. That was his shit. Yeah. Right? Yeah. They, I mean, he was like a part of that weird hippie subculture of like the late '60s and the '70s. It's a strange time to be alive, man. These are the first people that were really kind of uh, experimenting with LSD and. Cannabis was like, oh, oh my God, some of these are so racist. I can't even look at them anymore. I am upset, Greg Fitzsimmons. I literally can't look at them. I'm looking up penthouse. Yeah, I know that's crumb. not one I would have around uh, the house with the kids. Well, I think people now, they look at the content of it. That was kind of what that Guardian article was about. They're like, hey, uh, this guy was kind of fucked up. Like, why are we making him out to be this amazing artist? But it is amazing art because it, it does something to you. It gives you this reaction. You know, it's is it necessarily all good? No, but it's it's art. Like yeah. this is a very, this is a very unique individual viewpoint. Like this is this guy's viewpoint, and that's that is art. You you might not like it, you might be weirded out by it, but it takes weird people to make shit that strikes you, in the way that this guy's work strikes people. Well, art's turned into something that people are supposed to agree with, yeah. and and you know, and it's supposed to not offend anybody, and that's. The opposite. Art's supposed to shake it up. It's supposed to challenge. I mean, you think about punk rock, and now it's almost like 
folksy. When you think about, oh, punk rock, yeah, they have a mohawk and they pierce stuff and they jump up and down. But when it came out, it was anarchy. It was at a time, you know, when it came out in London, it was about, you know, there were there was strikes going on at the time and there was riots going on in the street. And, you know, punk rock represented something that was really fucking scary to the status quo. Yeah, it wasn't just your mom won't buy you a car. And now they call Green Day punk rock. It's like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> when Green Day was shitting on Justin Bieber, we're not fucking Justin Bieber. It was like, oh, God. Oh, did they say? If you yeah. have to say that, you're not punk rock. Yeah. I mean, there was something where they're getting him off stage early. Do you remember that, Jamie? Yeah, he freaked out and he said, we're not fucking Justin Bieber. I think he probably apologized to Justin Bieber after that. But, yeah. I yeah. No offense, like Green Day's a great band, but they're not punk rock. Yeah, they're okay. They're an okay pop band. Yeah, you know? they're a pop band. Yeah, it's not it's not my style, but they have some songs that I like. Sure. You know, if I hear them, I think they're enjoyable. Right. But it's not like, this is like, our crumb was like, really essentially like punk rock comic books. I mean, yeah. He, he A lot of the racist stuff that he did... He wasn't necessarily being racist as he was highlighting like how a racist would view something and doing it in a very shocking way. Like, I don't think there can be, uh, I don't think I've ever read anything. I might be wrong, but I don't think I've read, ever read anything that indicated that he was actually racist. No, no, I don't think so. I think he was actually a big liberal. I think, you know, he lived in San Francisco, I believe. Yeah. But I think it was a lot to do with just being a boy expressing himself. He was, he kind of had arrested development. And he was in the same way that when I was 12 years old, the pictures that I would make would probably be in the wheelhouse of the shit that he was making. He just made it much better and he did it as a man. But to, but to put big pussy lips and nipples that are, you know, four inches long, like that's what he used to write. He's, yeah. I think he was just expressing that. Yeah. Well, also, I guess what he was doing um, with a lot of his images, they were racist pop culture images from the 1940s. So he was reviving this very specific type of imagery uh. that was really racist. And so the real question, the argument in this uh, article on uh, hood utilit hooded, hoodedutilitarian.com, um, the argument was whether or not it was ironic and or parody and like whether it's enough to absolve him of doing you know these images of, yeah. of re reenacting them or recreating them hmm it's interesting it's it's interesting because it's kind of it's revealing like a very specific style of racist cartoons that they used to do yeah and in doing so he's like you know he's highlighting it he's showing you like hey like this is if you're normal and if you are a reasonable person who, who's not racist, you're not going to get racist feelings from looking at this. What you're going to do is you're going to say, wow, this was like how people who are racist think. Yeah. It's not going to make you racist. No, you look at like, uh, you know, Chaplin was doing Hitler, you know, F Troop. You know, you're, yeah. you're depicting the Holocaust yeah. in a way that brings some humor to it and brings a different angle to it. You know, and he brought, he had humor in his pictures. Yeah, you don't become racist by looking at racist shit, right? The idea is... Affecting developing developing minds, developing you know personalities, children, adolescents, like showing them racist stuff and letting them know it's okay. That can plant racist seeds. But once you're an adult, like no one's gonna no one's gonna like make you racist. Like if you're Greg Fitzsimmons in 2015 and you see some some fucking ridiculous racist racist imagery, you're not gonna automatically become racist, no. right? So the real concern is like 
are we protecting people from these satire images because we're worried about the impact of them or because it's offensive? It's offensive to some people. And it's only going to be offensive to some people until things even out. Like if you do ridiculous racist versions of white people, I think it's hilarious. And I'm yeah. white. You know why? Because white people are ahead of the curve. And if it evens out to the point where black people and white people and Chinese people and everyone, it's on such a fucking even ground. And that racism is completely preposterous. But the racial differences of each nationality is allowed to be highlighted in brutal fashion. Hmm. And nobody cares. Yeah. Like if you, you like Richard Pryor sold to white people the idea of mocking white people hey there fella you know the white motherfuckers at work would you know like and we laughed yeah we oh, all your laughed. mama bitch my mom was a great old cow yeah you know like you could white mock. people never got offended by no, that oh never never it's like going ah very cute but there's a lot of jokes like you're not even allowed to joke about certain people on stage like at all mm. like you any joke about them is racist mm -hmm. this is racist yeah. or it's homophobic or it's whatever fill in the blank yeah and that's ridiculous like that's ridiculous who like, did the joke about rosa parks and they got a lot of shit about it someone did a joke about rosa parks yeah they something like he was she was just too tired she was too lazy to move to the back of the bus or something like that and it was like it fucking blew up it was a black comic hmm. i don't know if it was cat will no it wasn't cat williams but it's uh what, it, what do you think about leslie jones What's Leslie she's doing? doing fucking great. She just uh, she's gonna be in the new Go Ghostbusters movie. Le who's Leslie Jones? You know oh, her from the comedy. Oh, you know what? She probably left the comedy store before you came back. She's black chick. She's tall. She opened for uh, Cat Williams for years. Oh, okay. She's a killer. Okay, I don't know her. She's I've really seen, fucking. I think I've seen her on TV once. She's she's a big, funny, great chick, and oh. she's uh, she struggled for. Fucking 15, 20 years doing stand-up. I don't know, fifteen years maybe. Good for her. And then she got a she got on SNL and she's just blowing up on SNL. And then she just got Ghostbusters. Wow, Ghostbusters with all chicks. Is that what it is? Yes. Oh. All chick cast. Okay. Good luck with that. Yeah, that's gonna be a, <laughs> a different angle that's, on the, that. The new new remakes of movies are just. It's hard to get behind these remakes of movies. It's mm. like you know, and we're gonna flip the switch. Mm -hmm. We're gonna do Cagney and Lacey with gay men. Yeah, you know, like, yeah. you know, we're gonna do, you know, not Cagney and Lacey. What was the one where they went off the fucking Thelma and Louise? Yeah, went they redid the Thelma and Louise with gay men. No, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine I was in. two I was gay in. guys holding hands, uh. driving off the cliff? <laughs> And they're driving across the country just blowing yeah. guys in rest areas. Yeah, just blowing guys and shooting women. <laughs> <laughs> women that don't want her to be gay, they get gunned down. And then they're running Shoot from the her. law. No, let her run first. Because wasn't, wasn't Thelma and Louise, like, some guy did something horrible to them? Yeah, you know who them? played that guy? It was, was uh, Brad Pitt. Oh, shit, that's right. Right. That's when he was a young, sexy thing. Oh, God damn it, he was a good-looking man. man. Oh, the tits on him? God damn it, he was perfect. Oh. That was a great movie, though. That was if, like the first chick buddy movie where the chicks were gangster. Right. right. You know, there's, there's a few of those moments where the chicks were like super fucking badass in a believable way. Yeah. One of the best ones was Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction and Kill Bill was just as badass. Yeah. Or how about this? Maybe even better. What was the, not, not Pulp Fiction, what was the one with Christ, Christian Slater? That uh, oh, Terrence Tarrant. Wow. True Romance. True Romance. True romance. Dude. Yeah, she was great. Come on, man. What's her name? Patricia Arquette? 
Is it Patricia Arquette or the other one? Well, there was two movies that were similar. There right. was Patty Arquette did one, uh, and then uh, what's what, her name? How many the Arquettes other one? are there? There's a David Arquette, Patricia Arquette. It was a Patricia. She was the one in True Romance. Yeah, when she uh, was it Gandolfini and her have that fucking crazy fight scene, or was it John Madsen? Who was it? Who else is in it? Is Gandolfini in it? That's all it says for the cast. But who? Uh, no, there was somebody that got in that that. It was Gandolfini. Yeah, Gandolfini beats the shit out of her, and she eventually kills him at the end. And it was just so wild because it was like believable. She was talking shit while he was beating the fuck out of her, and then she eventually kills him. And it's just so wild and primal when she does, and she's all fucked up and beaten up. Like you really felt like she had been in a fight and yeah. just killed this fucking yeah. guy. It wasn't like a Charlie's Angels type thing. It like was so real. Yeah, it was so real. And what was that- the one with Juliet Lewis? Natural Born Killers. Oh, that was pretty Natural badass, Born Killers too. was amazing. Yeah. I want to get her in here, man. We, she said she would do it, too. She said she would do the podcast. She's a comedy fan, right? She hangs yeah. out with a lot of comics. She's a fascinating person. Is she? And she believes that, like, Tom Cruise is a victim of, like, propaganda when it comes to, like, anti-Scientology propaganda. I would love to hear someone who's, like, a happy Scientologist. Oh, she's a Scientologist. To, yeah. Oh, hardcore. Wow. Unless she doesn't want to talk about that. Have I'll, you had a Scientologist on before? No. No. I was curious how much they want to talk about it. I used to have a neighbor who couldn't shut the fuck up about it. Right. He loved it. He was telling me about how his wife was going clear. Yeah. She was spending 50 grand to turn clear. Huh. 50 grand. When you know what happens when you're clear? What? You're no longer negatively affected by outside influence, Gregory. That's amazing. It's incredible. Fixes 50 everything. Grand? 50, 50 Pay up. Probably going to be some outside influences because you're going to be broke. <laughs> you go, this guy wanted to buy a piece of property. He couldn't buy it because his wife was going clear. <laughs> I'm not kidding. <laughs> He was talking about this piece of property. Are you shitting me? Yeah, he wanted to, you know, it was like adjacent to his his property. He was thinking about buying it, but he couldn't afford it because his Did he try to get clear. you to a meeting? Uh, no. no he never he tried? Not. Nope. Nope. Explain it to me. Tell yeah. me how much it benefited him, but it wasn't proselytizing. Mm-hmm. Thank goodness. Wow. That would have been ugly. That would be Ding awkward dong. as shit. Mr. Yeah. Rogan, oh, you're in there. It's me, happiness. Your happiness <laughs> waits. It's clarity. It's at the door. It's your choice. Go with clarity or with none. The coast is clear, Joe. Don't they like to use like acronyms? They have to. They use abbreviations or yeah. whatever it is for like all these different types of people, suppressive people. And, yeah. Like they have all these different like things that they call upon when they define like various aspects of negative people that yeah. you encounter in your life that disbelieve the tenets of Scientology. Yeah, there's like orgs, orbs, yeah. something. I read a book about uh, <laughs> written by the niece of the guy who is the head of Scientology. <sighs> She broke out. She talked about being a child slave. Like, they literally separated her. Meanwhile, her uncle is the head of Scientology, so she had juice. Still took her away from her parents and sent her to an all-child colony where she was raised. And then brought to Hollywood to to live. They kept moving her around. Every time she gets settled in, they just uproot her, separate her from her brother, send her to fucking Florida, send her to L.A., the desert. And she talked about how the kids built the entire colony that they lived in. They, they did all the, they would just put them out to work every day. They'd work like eight hours just weeding and gardening and building fences and all this crazy shit. And they would get schooled for like two hours a day. And it was mostly Scientology schooling. What's the name of the book? Uh, raised by. Do you remember the woman? 
Mm, I get the worst fucking memory. <laughs> Wait, I can look it up. Jamie, he'll find it. He'll find right. it. He'll find it. And it's I gotta read that. And it just tracks how you know. Then she they they don't want you to procreate because uh, babies are a burden on the church. They want you to work. They want to create worker bees, and Whoa. they they discourage the you know. How much does someone like Tom Cruise have to pay? They pay ten percent. Is that the deal? I think it's tithing. Yeah, it's probably like a ten percent tithe. That's strong. And they got some videotapes. If you don't want to pay, or you know, they they make it worth your while to pay. Like right. they they benefit you. Like they they that they throw rose petals wherever that guy walks. And this and they're a publicity firm. Yeah. They 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 whatever you want changed about your. Uh, is this the book, Beyond Belief? Yeah, that's it. My Secret Life Inside Scientology, My Harrowing Escape by Jenna Miscavige. Yes, Miscavige. And Miscavige is the name of the guy who's the head of Scientology. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. I nice. mean, it's really crazy that she wrote it because she was when she left the church, she was threatened by, I mean, this is her fucking family. And they, they would come down and like threaten her, threaten her, uh, her brother who was still mm. inside the church, threaten her mother. <sighs> they don't fuck around. Fuck, man. Yeah, you could have been born there. You know, I could have been born there. Right. That's that's the luck of the draw. Hey, I was born Catholic. It's not. Uh, As was I. Could have been. Could have been better. Did you do Catholic school? Oh yeah. No, no. I did Catholic uh, school on Wednesdays and then church on Sundays. I did one whole year Catholic school. What grade? First. Oh, that's not too bad. They smack enough. you around a little bit? No, scared me. Yeah. He maybe hit me very gently. Mm. Nothing serious. Nobody yeah. beat me up, but scared the fucking shit out of me and just sorrow. Just the walls were soaked with sorrow. Yeah. Just awful, awful place. Who's the bloody guy yeah. hanging on the wall? <laughs> That's the guy that uh, you're supposed to be more like. Oh, I should end up like him if you're good. <laughs> if you're lucky. <laughs> we're out of time, Greg Fitzsimmons. Uh, did you read off all your dates? I did. We're coming up in Denver, Addison, wherever. You What's know, the website again? Fitzdog.com and then the podcast Fitzdog Radio tonight, is twice a week. Tonight, Greg Fitzsimmons is also going to be at the Ice House in Pasadena. Probably sold out. Uh, it was very close earlier this morning, so most likely. It's going to be fun as shit. It's you, me, great. Duncan, and Tony Hinchcliffe. No, and uh, Ian Edwards. Jesus Christ. Nice. That's hell of a show. Yeah. Tony, Clint Tony Hinchcliffe, Duncan, Ian, and Greg. Goddamn, son. Yeah. And me. So uh, we'll see you, dirty fucks, tonight. Greg Fitz, Fitzdog.com, what is it? Fitzdog.com. Fitzdog.com, uh, Greg Fitz Show on Twitter. And uh, that's it, ladies and gentlemen. We'll see you next week. Until then, enjoy. Big kiss. Be nice to each other. Bye.